This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. the beginning of the end of a week, the beginning of the weekend. See, it's all cyclical. It's all nonlinear. It's all a circle. Ends, beginning, they all kind of merge into one another. What we do on the first hour of our last show of the week is we give you an opportunity to ask questions about anything you would like. And as has been customary, what I would love is if you have gotten a question on the air before Wait 15 minutes, give new people an opportunity that maybe haven't gotten to participate before because the lines do jam up pretty quickly. And maybe we could talk about adding a few more lines here because I think we used to have 10 and now we have eight. We can maybe look into that in our weekly meeting later today. But without further ado, it is time for The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Our number, 1-800-848-9222. First time listening to this, the rules are very simple. You can call in and ask questions. I think most of you should know what a question is, but let me give you some examples of what a question is not. A question is not a five-minute monologue where you state your opinion, and then at the end of that five-minute monologue you say, right? That's not a question. Questions begin with begin questions generally begins begin with words like what, where, who, why, how, do, does. Those are examples that a question is about to uh, be forthcoming. Whatever you're curious about, I'll do my best to answer it. Doesn't mean I'm going to have the answer, but if you have advice questions, if you have questions about the political process, if you have questions about aliens, if you have questions about the inside radio world, if you have questions about pro wrestling, if you have questions about my preferences when it comes to certain things, questions about my personal history, questions about the criminal justice system, whatever the case may be, anything that you are genuinely curious about, Now's the time to call in and ask 800-848-9222. If um, whoever comes up with the most interesting, most creative question for the hour, as judged by Matt Blaze, Kenneth, and Alex Barnard, we will give you a prize, a nice piece of merchandise from the other side of Midnight Store. By the way, you know what I thought might be fun, and this might turn out to be lame, so if it becomes lame, then we will not stick with it. But what I thought might be fun to try, at least for the first few questions, is I'm going to answer your questions, as I normally do. However, I'm also going to simultaneously put your question in to ChatGPT and see what ChatGPT says. So this way you could see if you like my answer better or ChatGPT's answer better. I have no idea how this is going to go. This can either be the most brilliant thing I've ever done or yet another failed experiment. Well, let us kick things off with Dan on Long Island. Hello, Dan. 
Hey, Frank, uh, have you ever seen the 1967 Martin Sheen, Bo Bridges movie called The Incident? No, I, ne- I never saw it, uh, but I love both oh. of them. Okay, well, oddly enough, this is uh, a lick it up thug on a subway car in New York City terrorizing all the passengers, and get this, a Marine on leave with a broken arm and a cast uses his cast as a weapon to bash the thug's head in at the end. Wow, no, I've never seen it. I've never seen it, Dan. But I'll give you ChatGPT's answer. As an artificial intelligence language model, I have not seen any movies as I do not have the ability to watch videos or have visual perception. However, I have access to a vast database of information and can provide insight and details about the 1967 Martin Sheen and Bo Bridges movie, The Incident. The movie is a dramatic portrayal of a group of passengers on a New York City subway car who become the victims of a brutal and sadistic attack by two thugs. The movie explores the human condition and the actions people take in extreme situations. Despite its dark subject matter, the incident is considered a classic of American cinema and is still widely watched and discussed today. I have to say, I think even though neither of us have seen it, I think that round, the better answer goes to ChatGPT. I yield to your superior intellect. Alan is in Queens. Hello, Alan. Hi, good morning, Frank. Morning. My question, my question is this: mm. Why uh, does a person like me cannot go one day without hearing about Hunter Biden and the laptop and the corruption? But you never hear a word about the two billion dollars that the guy from Saudi Arabia gave Trump's son-in-law. And I don't care if a person has all the money in the world. When he gives, when then someone gives... All right, money. thank you, Alan. I'm already bored. So I, I guess the, the question is, and I'm not even going to bother trying to put that barrage of sentence fragments into ChatGPT, but I guess the question is, why does a person like me not go a day without hearing about Hunter Biden, but I, I never hear about Jared Kushner? I think it's twofold. One, I think it might be your media choices. I think there are plenty of media outlets you could pursue that will cover wall-to-wall Jared Kushner-related news. The other issue is that Biden is the president currently, and Hunter Biden is potentially facing criminal charges, which Jared Kushner is not. There's no evidence that Jared Kushner is facing any sort of criminal charges at all. All right, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Rob is in New Jersey. Hello, Rob. Hi, Frank. Um, I just wanted to know if you think a grown man going to Disney World in the summer, like with no kids, to wait in the sweltering heat for four hours and pay good money for overpriced, terrible-tasting food, if you think he could be diagnosed with a mental illness? Uh, No, I I think a lot of people, and thank you for the call, Rob, my view is there's a lot of people that really enjoy going to Disney. Uh, For some people, it's a way for them to stroll down the uh, road of nostalgia. Um, For some people, it's a way to see other families and children that are having a good time and maybe make them feel better, a little less lonely about the fact that they don't necessarily have have a, a family. So, no. Uh, I asked the same question to the chat GPT, and he said, 
or she or they. As an AI language model, I do not make personal judgments or offer opinions on individuals based on their actions or choices. So that one, I think I win that one. That's one for the Frankster. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Neil on Staten Island. Hello hello there, Neil. Hey, Frank. Uh, the governor, uh, Governor Holker, wants to ban tobacco from, uh, from New York. I was wondering, I know you love to put your feet up on the weekend and smoke a nice Dutch master. Uh, are you going to run to New Jersey to smoke that cigar now and go over the bridge and have to pay the toll? Or are you going to try to sneak it into your basement uh, against the law? Well, my understanding, uh, Neil, thank you. My understanding is that, uh, and I, I do smoke a cigar once in a while, but my understanding is she's trying to ban menthol-flavored cigarettes. That's my understanding. And I have to say, I understand where she's coming from on this because flavored cigarettes are banned. And yet the one exception to that ban is menthol cigarettes. Now, why? Why should menthol is a flavor of cigarettes? Now, if we're going to ban flavored tobacco, because look, flavored cigars are banned also. They used to be very popular. Flavored cigars are banned. And if we're going to ban flavored cigarettes and flavored tobacco of all kinds, if that's the law, then the law should be equally applied then the menthol cigarettes should be banned. But it looks to me like the people who are uh, fighting against the menthol ban, they're essentially saying, well, we shouldn't ban menthol cigarettes because black people tend to prefer menthol as a flavor. Now, to me, that's the most absurd argument that there is. I find it, uh, I, I find it absolutely crazy that you're saying we're racist if we don't prohibit the product that is killing black people at a greater rate. I mean, it's it's that insane. So I, I think if we're going to ban flavored tobacco, let's ban flavored tobacco. Let's not pick and choose which flavors we're going to allow. You know, during the winter, I, sm- I don't smoke cigars generally. I smoke a pipe. And I used to really enjoy flavored pipe tobacco. I used to enjoy a little cherry tobacco. I used to enjoy a little Cavendish tobacco in my pipe. And my wife, that's the one thing, I would never smoke a cigar indoors, but my wife loves the smell of a pipe. And she would actually encourage me, especially around the holidays, November, December, January, to smoke the pipe indoors because she loved the smell and especially of that cherry tobacco. Now, I can't buy cherry tobacco anymore or Cavendish tobacco. Now, I'm not crying about it. I'm kind of moving on. But I uh, do think that that it should be equally applied. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Mark is in New Jersey. Hello, Mark. Hey, good morning, Frank. How are you? So I once heard this thing that if you take an avocado pit out of the avocado and put it in water, like in the separate cup, it could actually make the avocado stay green. Now, I never believed it because it sounds ludicrous, but I actually tried it yesterday, and it actually worked. I was wondering what your take on it is, if you know any of the science behind it, or if you even believe it. Uh, I... Have, this is the first that I'm hearing of it, Mark. Thank you. But I'm a big avocado fan. And so is my son. He says um, uh, avado. He calls them avado. But he knows what it is. He doesn't quite grasp that you have to peel it before eating it. Uh, I was holding him today or yesterday. And he would just grab the avocado and bite it almost like it's an apple. So he hasn't quite gotten the grasp of how to eat it. But um, it will, you know, he knows what it is and he likes the flavor. I'd not heard that. Uh, if you take an avocado pit and put it in a separate cup, 
will the the avocado stay green? So no, I can't uh, I can't vouch for that. Let me see if Chat GPT knows anything about that. Um, okay, it says if you take an avocado pit and put it in a separate cup, it is unlikely that the av- avocado pit will stay green. The pit is the seed of the avocado and brown in color and not green like the fresh of the fruit. However, if you leave the avocado pit in a moist environment, it can sprout and begin to grow into a new avocado plant. To encourage sprouting, you can place the pit in a small container with water with the pointed end of the pit facing up. Over, the, over time, the pit will split and a root will emerge, followed by a stem and leaves. While this process can be fascinating to observe, it's important to note that not all avocado pits will successfully sprout, and growing a mature avocado tree from a pit can take many years. Well, that's interesting, and you've actually given me something that I may try tomorrow, to this afternoon. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Tony is in New Jersey. Hello, Tony. Hi, Frank. So... If you were to, once upon a time in America, if you were to pick the one president that you would want to be to fix something they did, who would that be and what would you do? Oh. Once upon a time in America. Uh, that is such a good question. You know, I mean, I guess the 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 best answer that I could give is I'd want to be, I think, probably James Buchanan or Franklin Pierce because – a lot of their inaction and their failures Correct. to bring the country together led to the Civil War, which is still the bloodiest war in our history. So I would love to – and thank you for the call, Tony. I would love to have been in their shoes, and I don't know what I would have done, but I would have done kind of the opposite of everything those guys did because clearly whatever they did didn't work in terms of preventing – the Civil War. 800-848-9222. Jay is on Long Island. Hello, Jay. Hey, good morning, Frank. How are you? So I had a question. I wanted to know why the, why the, the gaming industry, you know, you can try to play a video game as realistic as they try to make it. It doesn't come out looking realistic. And the movie industry, they do like a really crazy job. So why is that that it's not in sync? You know, I, I don't know. I feel like, thank you, Jay. I think I do watch a lot. I mean, I don't, I'm not a video gamer. I don't know about that. But I have seen video games that do look really realistic. Maybe not the same as a feature-length motion picture. But as to why that's disparity, I don't know. Uh, but uh, Elon Musk and others who are more technologically inclined than I am say that uh, pretty soon you are going to see video games that are indistinguishable from reality. So it seems like we're moving in that direction with the metaverse and augmented reality and virtual reality. But as to why we're not there already, that's above my pay grade. Jerry is in New Jersey. Uh, Hello there, Jerry. Hi, Frank. Uh, Here's the hypothetical. You know you can't get in any any trouble at all. You're not going to get caught. There's no way you can be caught or prosecuted. Uh, What candidate do you like for president right now so far? For the next election, 2024? Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard. Okay. So Tulsi Gabbard is running as a Republican, I would assume you're thinking, or an independent. Independent, I would hope. Okay. Tulsi Gabbard is running as an independent, and you know that she can win the election, but you have found out that the Democrats have cheated, and you have smoke and gun proof, and you know it, and only you know it, and it's your choice now. You have one or two choices. Either Tulsi Gabbard's going to lose, or you can cheat. And make her win. And the cheating is that you've got to go find some votes to out-cheat the Democrats. Will you do it, or will you let the Democrats win, or will you out-cheat them? 
You well, know they cheated. Yeah. So uh, if uh, no, first of all, no, I would not cheat to advance my uh, presidential candidate. I if the if I had evidence that the any political party, including the candidate that I was supporting, had cheated, I would first go to the authorities and then I would loudly proclaim so publicly and disclose all that evidence publicly. But no, I would not cheat to uh, benefit a candidate of my uh, of my choosing. And this is, believe it or not, this is actually an ethical quandary that comes up in politics all the time. And this is something that is frequently debated in uh, internal campaigns. And a lot of people believe the opposite of what I just said. And they point to all these examples throughout history of of, uh, not just presidential candidates, because it's actually more common on the local level, of candidates and campaigns that have cheated. And the person that won that election got to do some really great things. I mean, I think the most prominent example is probably the election of 1960. If we're being honest, John F. Kennedy did not win the election of 1960. And the mob cheated to rig that election for Richard Nixon. But um, Nixon was incredibly statesmanlike in defeat. He did not prolong this process and whine about it for two years or four years or eight years. He went on, did not challenge the results, and he supported President Kennedy's uh, transition. It must have killed him as the president of the Senate when they were going through that electoral college vote on January 6th of 1961 to sit there and announce that the guy that just beat him was now going to be the president-elect. But he did it because in spite of what's been written about Nixon throughout history, Nixon was a patriot. First and foremost, that is absolutely the case. 800-848-9222, We're going to continue with your questions in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. By We the Kings, uh, TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. Thank God it's Frank, and we're beginning this edition of our Friday program the way we do the final show of the week each week by giving you an opportunity to ask questions about anything you like as part of the other side of midnight. Proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Whatever your questions are, I'll do my best to answer them. Kyle is in Connecticut. Kyle, what's your question? 
Hey, how are you? First of all, before I ask you my quick question, I just want to say thank you so, so, so much for all you do. You are absolutely terrific. Oh, that's you awfully are- nice of you. Thank you, Kyle. Yes. All right. Let me ask you like this. Very similar to our previous question. If you had anyone in the world dead or alive to meet, who would that be? Well, you can invite him. You can yeah. invite him to your house. Sit down with him for around a good hour with a nice cold beer. Anyone that's dead or alive from the beginning of the world, who would that be? You know, it's a good question, and it's a question that I uh, that I think about a great deal. And a lot depends on the circumstance of our meeting. If it's social, I'm I'm picking a different group than if it's an interview. If it's an interview, I'm picking a different person than if uh, we're going to a bar. If we're going to a bar, it's a different person than if I'm going to a restaurant or a baseball game. Uh, But you're saying dead or alive, which is so interesting. I think it's got to be, I think it's got to be Theodore Roosevelt, uh, because to me, Theodore Roosevelt was genuinely an American Renaissance man. And I would think uh, maybe I would pick someone that was an actual Renaissance man, like a Leonardo da Vinci or someone like that. But then I don't really speak Italian. So I, I, I think I would almost be wasting my wish because da Vinci didn't speak English and I don't speak Italian. So I don't know what we would do with Theodore Roosevelt. We um, I'm I'm. As interested in his life, if not more so than Da Vinci, at least as much, and we'd be able to communicate because we both speak the same language. So I'm picking Theodore Roosevelt. That's my pick. However, this is what ChatGPT says. As an artificial intelligence language model, I do not have personal desires or preferences, so I cannot have a desire to meet anyone in the world dead or alive. However, I can provide information about individuals who have made significant contributions to various fields. Lame, lame, lame. And it mentions Da Vinci, ah. Einstein, Marie Curie, Martin Luther King Jr. That's another one where human beats machine, okay? 800-848-9222. Angie is in Brooklyn. Hello there, Angie. Hi, good evening. Um, I wanted to know, um, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, of course. Thank you. But I've been, I was listening to the radio yesterday, and I hear that you're going to be one of the four or five people on a panel that's going to decide whether Curtis is coming back to um, a show, uh, I guess, uh, um, um, the show, uh, the 6 o'clock in the morning show. I'm sorry. I'm yeah, uh, no, I, I think you might have misunderstood what those guys were saying. What um, And if people don't know what Angie's talking about, thank you for the call, Angie. She's talking about the Sid and Friends in the Morning Show that uh, airs in New York, which is a very popular show. And uh, Curtis was uh, joking around the other day that he was going to propose that they have me suspended. And they have a couple of people suspended already. And so they've established basically a tribunal of five people to make judgments about who's suspended and who's not. It's Sid. It's Noam Layden. It's uh, Justin. It's Bo Deedle, And I think one other person. And uh, Lou Rufino and um, Curtis was going to make his case to this tribunal that I should be suspended. But uh, but no, I, I first of all, it's all just made up. It's all just shtick. It's just fun. I mean, it's uh, there's nobody being suspended. Uh, nobody's suspended. It's kind of an old Imus routine. He used to somebody used to do something lame and he'd say, you're suspended. You know, so it's that it's kind of an homage to those days with respect to um, with respect to Imus. So uh, so no, I wouldn't take that too seriously, but I am not on the panel. I will be coming before the panel to make my case for not being suspended. It's as simple as that. 800-848-9222. Jules is in Queens. Hello, Jules. Yeah, hi, Frank. Hi. It's a simple question that I have. 
the, the Judge Judy and the other other court shows that are on television, what do these people get that subject themselves to you know, being made fun of and everything else by the judge? Do they get extra money and do and the ex- guilty people have to pay, is it paid for for them by the court Excellent or question. the studio? Excellent question, Jules. Uh, yes, the answer is yes. If you go on one of those TV judge shows and you have an argument over whatever, $800 or $1,000 or a broken laptop or whatever, um, as part of your agreement to go on that show, if you lose, the studio does pay your bill. So you don't have to pay any money. And that's exactly why so many people go on there and humiliate themselves and embarrass themselves. That is absolutely correct. Your hunch is correct. Uh, that is the case. 800-848-9222. Brandon is in New Jersey. Hello, Brandon. All right, Reverend Romar, uh, Romano. Uh, Morano, sorry. That's right. Um, it's uh, the Tower of Babel. If God never struck us down, presuming that's true, where do you see history at this point? And do you think we're... Uh, kind of headed back towards a Tower of Babel type of situation. Um, well, so I, I'm not clear on the first part of your your question. I understand the latter part, I think, but repeat the first part of your question. Well, so, you know, the Tower of Babel still happened, but uh, assuming God decided not to change everybody's race and language, where do you think the earth would be right now? Well, um, thanks, Brandon. I, I, I don't believe that the Tower of Babel really happened. And maybe that makes me an apostate. But uh, I think, you know, I think a lot of what's in the Old Testament is the inspired word of God rather than what's in the Gospels, which I think is the actual word of God. But that's really just my uh, personal dogma. But let's say you're right. I um, I think and uh, maybe people are going to be upset with this, but I think the diversity in language the diversity in culture, the diversity in history, the diversity in a people's personal story is really a wonderful thing. I love meeting people that speak a different language, that have a different um, cultural background than I do, a different history than I do, and learning about it. And it exposes me to a whole new world. You know, I have a, a lot of good friends that are that are Muslim, for instance, and I love asking them about Muslim traditions that I was never really exposed to. I never, you know, obviously I was I didn't grow up Muslim. I never had any Muslim friends. So I really am of the three religions of Abraham, I am the most ignorant of Islam. So it's the one that I'm most interested in learning about, but the same could be true of Greek people. I love uh, talking to Greek people and finding that they have certain words for people and for relationships that we don't have. In the English language, Um, Italians, Europeans, Africans, South Americans. I think it's a wonderful thing to learn about people's different cultural history and different languages. So if uh, God had never done that, assuming that story is correct, then I think the world would be a much more boring place. Now, I want to be very clear. I have no qualms about uh, exercising judgment about the traditions involved in one culture being superior or inferior to another. For instance, if you come from a cultural background where you're, um, you know, executing a woman that commits adultery or something along those lines, something similarly draconian, I think that's awful. And I think Western values are far superior to that sort of a thing. But uh, do I think we're headed back towards a Tower of Babel now? You know, I don't. I understand why you asked the question, because 
I often feel after I spend five minutes calling for uh, trying to connect with my phone company or my uh, whatever company and you're waiting five minutes for press one for this language, press two for that language, and pretty much you're at press five for English. I understand why you're asking it, but uh, I'm all, I've also been in the position to be able to go all over the world and find people that still speak English. You know, I went to went to France, and they speak English in France. Went to Italy, they speak English in Italy. The same thing in community after community. So I think in a lot of ways, English has become a language that people learn all over the world. And, you, you know, uh, so no, I don't think we're becoming a Tower of Babel again, although I understand... I understand what you're uh, what you're asking. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Gina is in Brooklyn. Hello, Gina. Hi, Frank. I'm with you on the diversity. I love it. My question is: You have mentioned that you have a painting in your home that Victoria Gotti painted. I wanted to know what kind of paint did she use? The watercolor, acrylic, oil, and what is the subject of the painting? That is a uh, great question. I think it's a watercolor. Um, although, no, you know what it is? It's a lithograph. It's a lithograph, and it's uh, it's a lithograph, and it's uh, it's a, a photo. Uh, not a photo, but it's a picture of her and her husband when they were much younger. And they're scantily clad, and they almost look like they're about to have sex. There's no nudity, but there's implied sexuality. But it's a really uh, breathtaking lithograph. She's actually quite an artist. She's uh, she's very, very good. So is it abstract or realistic? I would say it's somewhere in between. Uh, the It doesn't look um, – I mean, you could tell it's, it's two people, but uh, uh-huh. it doesn't look um, – It I would say it's somewhere in between astra- abstract and, and realistic because it doesn't look exactly how a person looks. It is kind of very – it's artistic, you know? I mean, that's the best, uh, the best way I could uh, describe it. I think I have to actually get a new frame or something for that because I think the matting – is starting to go in a certain part of it. I, have, I may have to have that re remat, and I appreciate the reminder. 800-848-9222. Igor is in New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Yes, uh, greetings, Frank. Hey, last weekend, I, I have two questions for you. Last week, I asked you about the employ, employability of Don Lemon versus Tucker Carlson. You chose Carlson, obviously. Right. How much do you think he hurt his future with these, with these leaked texts that are attributed to him? I not much at all. I, I think um, the any future employer that was going to shy away from Tucker because of something like that was already not going to hire Tucker because of the things that he has said on air and because of the things that had already come out in the Dominion lawsuit. I think anybody that hires Tucker, whether it's News Nation or Newsmax, although I, I've said I think the most likely path for him is that he's going to do his own thing. Uh, they're hiring him because he can instantly bring. 2 million viewers or 2 million listeners to a network or to a media outlet. I, I don't think an embarrassing text message will um, will hurt that at all. I'll give you, you just one corollary. You know, Bill O'Reilly, who was very similar to Tucker in his ability to be able to command an audience, a lot of very embarrassing things came out about Bill O'Reilly at various times. And yet... Whether it's the first, whether it's some of the radio stations that I'm on, whether it's uh, Chris Cuomo's show on News Nation, whether it's, you know, a media outlet after media outlet, everybody still wants Bill O'Reilly, even with all that embarrassing stuff, because 
he, much like Tucker Carlson, can deliver an audience instantly. And so I don't think it hurts him at all. What was your other question? Okay, so the other one's a little more playful. So let's say you're having a good time in a New York bar and you, you happen to walk out with a glass and there was a misunderstanding. You realized what kind of guy you are and you got arrested. All right. So of the three guys who are in front of you, Matt Blaze and, and, and Alex and Kenneth, of those three, who do you think is the most likely, if you were to call them up and you need to be bailed out of jail, who's the most likely to drop everything and come immediately? Well, give me And the- of those three, who do you think might be the most discreet and maybe not mention it ever again? Well, wait, so the three are Kenneth, Matt Blaze, and Alex Barnard? That's correct. Yeah, that's a good question. So, well, first of all, I don't care if they mention it. I mean, I guess if I'm I'm in jail for something really embarrassing, then I would care. But, um, but you know, I, I have four hours to fill, so chances are it would be a story that I would tell on the radio. But uh, who would I call out of the three of them? Um, well, where am I arrested? I think that's that's a factor because in New York, New York City. Well, if, New York I'm, City. if I'm arrested in Manhattan, I'm calling Alex because he lives in Manhattan, and I think he could get down to jail more quickly. I think um, so. If I'm arrested in Jersey, you know, I'm calling Matt Blaze. If I'm arrested in the northern suburbs, I'm calling uh, I'm calling Kenneth. I think they would all be pretty discreet, honestly. If you ask them, I don't get the sense that they really are that into the. The gossip mongering that is so prevalent in uh, in radio uh, today. It's a good question, though. Do you, um, you any of you want to offer an opinion on that uh, that question? I got page six on speed dial. Right yeah, here. I bet you do. I bet you do. <laughs> no, that sounds about right. I mean, I mean, it makes sense, right? You're arrested in Manhattan. You call Alex, but I'm thinking most likely you would be arrested in Atlantic City. Which would then you'd have to call me. See, that shows how little you know about Atlantic City. No one gets arrested in Atlantic City. Nobody gets arrested. You, you got to almost kill yeah. someone to be arrested in Atlantic <laughs> City, and then maybe, maybe they'll arrest you. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. James is in Baltimore. Hello, James. Hey, how are you? Let me ask you like this. If you had a choice to amputate your arm or your leg, which one do you do and why? Well, um, if if do I get to pick which arm? You get to pick which arm. Uh, you get no. You get to you get to pick the, whichever. If you're a righty or a lefty, whichever one, you got to pick it. You got your your bad your good hand. That's the one that gets cut off. Oh, so if I'm right-handed, I have to pick my right hand. Correct. Yeah. So I'm going with my leg. I'm going with a leg. Then I use my right hand for a great deal. I mean, even forget about writing, forget about typing, forget about using my mobile phone, forget about holding my son. Um, I use it for I'm right now I'm speaking and my right hand is moving. I use it to punctuate every syllable that I utter at all times. Additionally, um, my left leg, say, or my right leg, I don't really get that the dominant leg is doing much for me. I'm sure that it is, but I don't get the sense that I, I don't feel as dependent Listen, on my I'll, dominant I'll leg. Your, I'll take your leg. Well, You're thank a famous you. guy. I'll take your leg. Hey, well, hey, you make me an offer, James. We'll, we'll see. I mean, I have no desire to give up my leg, but also I feel like if I got a prosthetic leg, it would be a little bit less of an inconvenience for me than if I got a prosthetic right hand. You see what I'm saying? I feel like it would be a much greater cultural shock for me than if I lost my dominant hand. Make sense? I think so. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. 
two two. Deborah is in New Jersey. Hello, Deborah. Yes. Hi, Frank. At what age are you going to let Carmine watch his first scary movie? You know, it's a what good. Do you think it's appropriate. Uh, you know, it's a good question, and that's one that uh, my wife and I are going to have to chat about. And I guess yeah. my answer is it depends largely on how easily spooked he is about, uh, at things. Yes. If he is um, somebody that shows a great deal of sensitivity towards being scared, if he is prone to, say, bad dreams, if he's prone to um, getting overly overly emotional when something spooky happens, then I'd probably mm-hmm. wait, probably until about right. – probably about until at least about seven or eight – but if he's right. not, um, then I would show them to him early. Uh, I would show them you know, to him. You know what would be interesting? Remember the Abbott and Costello when they met Frankenstein and all that? Yeah. So it was a little bit of scary and comedy. Maybe that's a good idea to incorporate that. Yeah, I think that's great. And I watched those films, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, Abbott and Costello meet The Invisible Man, Abbott and Costello meet everybody. I watched those films from the time I was five years old on. Now, my mother is a, a big horror movie fan. So she would show me horror movies from the time that I, for, uh, my whole life, really, from the time that I was four, from the time that I was five, and I really enjoyed it. I, I really, she took me when I was maybe about nine, nine or ten, to a midnight showing of a very scary film on, uh, it was a Stephen King film, at uh, on a Saturday night. It was at 11 p.m. or midnight. Now, they'd probably throw in jail for that today, but it was so much fun. And it was the only time that I was ever scared in a theater. And uh, I actually remember screaming, uh, not screaming, but at least being startled and yelling when something spooky happened on screen. Now, my wife is not like that at all. Oh, so when I was five, my neighbor, who was the same age as I was, came over and my mom showed us a very scary movie. I don't remember what it was. Totally inappropriate for a five-year-old or a six-year-old. My neighbor, Brian, had nightmares. I didn't react at all. I thought it was just kind of silly. And I was interested in the story. So it goes to show you not every five-year-old, not every six-year-old is created equal. So I think it depends on Carmine's personality as it continues to develop. My hunch is he's not going to be bothered by that. But who knows? My wife is very sensitive to that stuff, so he may take uh, more from her on that. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Alyssa is in Manhattan. Hello, Alyssa. Good morning, Frank. Morning. Um, Normally I call, I try to have fun, ask you a fun question, but I need to be a little bit more serious this morning. I want to pick your brain because you are a broadcaster in media. Um, My question is two parts. The first part is that with all of the, you know, anger and fear being promoted in the world, you seem to be relatively unaffected by it, and your show reflects that. And is the are the other parts of the media, which we know is so powerful, um, are they promoting this and making it worse than it actually is? And the second part. Well, well uh, let me is, begin with the first part, Alyssa. When you say okay. promoting this, what do you mean promoting well, this? Well, the, the anger, the you know, ah. what everything that's going on that's that's creating this anger and fear from people and causing basically what's happening with society beginning to implode, which is what it seems like, you know, based on the interactions of the news, Got it. you know, Got over it. the past few weeks. And then, what, what's your second question? I'll try and, and answer my them both. second part is that. 
is there anywhere other than not everyone can catch a show overnight or every night? Is there any part of the media where someone like myself, say, can go? Um, and I, I, for, I won't get into this, but I go to Internet, um, but on TV and radio where someone can go, where they're reporting on news that's more of a positive well, influence uh, yeah, good, and gives you more hope great, than the hopelessness. Great question, Alyssa. And let me answer the first part first, obviously. Um, one, I think the media does have an interest in scaring you. I mean, I think that was textbook on display during COVID. They had people frightened beyond the point of rationality. I remember I would walk down the street and not wear a mask. People would shout at me from 20 feet away outside, total strangers. Hey, put a mask on, put a mask on. 400,000 people dead. What do you think, you're special? I'm outside. I'm outside and you're 20 feet away. Are you concerned that somehow my germs are going to travel uh, get to, to get, hail a taxi cab and migrate to your nostril? I mean, I, and, I mean, it just that was the moment where it just it, it blew my mind at where we were as a society. The media had people so paralyzed with fear. Shutting down beaches, shutting down parks, uh, making people have these ridiculous curfews at 8 p.m. And the uh, people went along with it like sheep because the media had these folks hypnotized. This was something that as far as we knew, people who got it, 99.5% of the public who got it survived. And we really behaved in such an irresponsible way by frightening people. So that is one example. I think the crime issue is another one. I mean, I know we're talking to a lot of different cities here, and uh, the crime in Baltimore is certainly much different than the crime in Anchorage. The crime in Memphis is different than the crime in Nashville. The crime in Ellie is different from the crime in uh, in Atlantic City. The crime in New York is different from, you know, the crime wherever else. So I recognize that. But I think the crime issue, I mean, there's a reason the old axiom in local news was if it bleeds, it leads. They try to frighten you into watching and now into clicking. And we live in a clickbait mentality where if you're scared, you'll watch, you'll listen, you'll click, you'll share. You'll share. And I think it's very dangerous. As far as objective media sources, it is a lot better if you have the Internet. But let's say you don't have the Internet. Okay. I really enjoy, and this is one of really the only show I never try to miss, Michael Smirconish on CNN uh, every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. They also repeat it at 3 p.m. Eastern. I really enjoy still, even though I've been critical of them from time to time, CBS Sunday morning, 9 9 a.m. Eastern on Sunday mornings. Beyond that, I really feel like almost all of the news media, the hard news media, is dominated by fear, fright, hysteria, and hype. Uh, I think the best solution I could offer people is try to read and listen to and watch sources that you trust. Do your own research about what people are telling you and see if what they're telling you drives with reality. And it's not just COVID. It's not just crime. You remember the summer of the shark where they had everybody convinced that the sharks were going to get them, the sharks were going to get them? 
there were fewer shark attacks that summer than a typical summer. How about the year that uh, every week was a different front page about somebody going to Punta Cana or the Dominican Republic and dying after drinking something at a resort? Well, it turns out there were less people dying at the resort than in a typical year. But the media has an interest not in telling the truth, but it's frightening you into watching. So I don't go for that. I don't go for that. And maybe maybe I'd be more successful if I did. All right. 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your questions straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Uh, answering your questions on any subject, trying to squeeze in as many as we can in the next seven minutes. I sort of abandoned the chat GPT thing because it was taking me too long to write and to read. So uh, was, I, I, I call the experiment a failure uh, on this one. Maybe for the next version of chat GPT, we'll try it again. All right, 800 Margie in the Catskills. What's your question, Margie? What was the one most important possession you had as a child? What age are we talking? Five to 15. Oh, okay. So that covers a lot of ground. Um, It's different things at different ages, but it will surprise no one that when I was around 10 or 11, I really was into talking into a tape recorder. I loved... Basically, I would host my own radio shows. I would interview my family, my friends. I'd make all sorts of weird sounds and do commentaries. I would carry this tape recorder everywhere I went and do radio shows of my own into this tape recorder. So that's around the age of 10. Uh, A little older, as a teenager, I was very into video recording. So I had a video camera that I really treasured and got a a big kick out of Uh, when I was a little younger um, I, I was uh, really into baseball and baseball memorabilia, so I always prized for a lot of those years a uh, baseball um, card and baseball memorabilia collection. I also, for some of that time, um, was really into wrestling collectibles and wrestling magazines. When I was about five, I think maybe even a little younger than five, I had a toy toolbox, and I swear to you, this is what I remember. I remember when I was four or five years old, my father who's a very intimidating guy, even when he's trying not to be. He's very, you know, nice guy, very smart guy. But his intelligence actually makes him a little more intimidating, believe it or not. So uh, he's very tall and, you know, very, very good shape, very stoic. Doesn't He's not like me in terms of speaking excessively and that kind of a thing. And the silence makes him a little more intimidating. And for whatever reason, I remember this. He does not. When I was about four or five years old, I had a toy toolbox. It was a, like a briefcase with all sorts of tools in it. And I was misbehaving or something. And I swear to you, I remember this. He, may, he, may, he insists that this never happened. And it's possible. Maybe my four-year-old or five-year-old brain made it up. I don't think so. I remember him being angry with me 
and really just frustrated because I was misbehaving like four-year-olds or five-year-olds do. And I remember him taking this toy toolbox that I had and throwing it off of our back balcony into the woods behind our house as a punishment. And uh, I, I was really traumatized by that because I really got such a kick out of this toy toolbox. And it really it made me so sad that my father just threw it away like that as a punishment. Now, he says it didn't happen. He does genuinely has no recollection of it. So, I mean, who am I trusting? His uh, 34-year-old brain at the time, 35-year-old brain, or my my four-year-old or five-year-old brain. I mean, it would be totally inadmissible in a court of law, but unless I manufactured this somehow, I remember that. And that, at five years old, was my favorite possession until he threw it away. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Lenny is in New Jersey. Hello, Lenny. Well, on cigars, uh, <clears throat> what are the good ones? Uh, do you ever get the real good ones, Frank? It depends on your your preference, right? I, I smoked a Macanudo last week that I thought was just great. Um, I mean, I almost got high on this Macanudo, which is very rare. I, in general, uh, prefer something that's a little longer, maybe a Churchill length, but that's not so dark. Uh, I like a longer, lighter smoke. A lot of times you smoke one of these super strong cigars and you feel like you're um, speaking like Larry King or Kathleen Turner afterwards. I don't like that. I don't like feeling as if um, my, my throat is on fire an hour after I've smoked it. But, I mean, I'm not taking anything away from a full-bodied aromatic cigar. But in general, I like a, a light Longer cigar. Uh, Ron is in New Jersey. Hello, Ron. Uh, good evening. How you doing? I'm uh, well. Following our, pre- following our previous caller, I like to suggest you get a Mac. Uh, I suggest you get a Perdomo uh, uh, champagne. That's actually light and it's very good. Um, but anyway, this is about the universe. I was intrigued about a question that was asked that talked about that you talked about the death of the universe mm-hmm. um, earlier early this week. Um, I was just I was just wondering. Do you think that this universe here is a one and done, or do you think this is just one of a cycle that keeps repeating itself? Well, I, honestly, I have no idea, Ron. I'll tell you what I do think. I believe that there are many parallel universes, right? And I believe that um, there are almost an infinite number of universes and uh, or other dimensions. And I could see, you know, we talk a lot about aliens, and we're going to do that next hour. Some people believe that some of the UFOs that people have seen are not from other planets, but from other dimensions. And a lot of credible people believe that. I could see that. I could absolutely see that. So is this universe one and done? I hope not. And uh, I don't think so, uh, but uh, I have no idea. I certainly don't think, I definitely think there are parallel universes. 800-848-9222. Mike is in South Carolina. Very quickly, Mike. Only have about a minute. Oh, very quickly. Now you give me the bum rush. I'm playing poker. All right, NYU? Okay, very quickly. A call, call I made to you uh, on national show, okay, and spoke about Alphonse Damati. We were talking about my father who was friends with him, played Pinochle. And then you go, well, didn't you know Rudy Giuliani doesn't like Alphonse? And then you hit the button. You know, my father's got a lot of friends. So, Mike, what's you the question? What? Matt you have, Alex, you have a question? Thank you. 
All right. Um, that was, what a waste of time. Jeez. All right. Uh, I'm not going to try and squeeze in another question here, but those of you that are on hold, if you want to try and hold on next hour, I'll try and get a few of you in. But we'll see. We have a pick for best question. Margie and the Catskills, your favorite childhood possession. There you go. That was a good question. That would be my selection as well. Margie, call back, and uh, we will try and give you a uh, we will try and give you a prize. Well done, uh, Margie. Call back eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Mark, Robert, Tom, Chris, Leo, Deborah. I'll try and get to you next hour. Meantime, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Here's a question. What do Hebrew schools and stretch limousines have in common? Any guesses? Well, I'll tell you. You don't have to guess. They are both diminishing rapidly. Oh, yes. Let me begin with what's happening in Hebrew schools. Hebrew school enrollment fell by almost half between 2006 and 2020 nationwide. That's according to a new report from the Jewish Education Project, which is a nonprofit supporting Jewish educators. Hebrew school, I was very surprised to see this, honestly, uh, because I would not have guessed this, and this is the first that I'm hearing about this. Hebrew school has long been a crucial place for passing on Jewish traditions and values. And I'm not Jewish, but a lot of my friends growing up were Jewish, and I went to all their bar mitzvahs or bat mitzvahs, and they often went to Hebrew school. And I don't know how much they're using those skills that they learned in Hebrew school today, but I really do feel like if it does connect young Jewish children with a broader cultural and historical tradition. The number of supplementary Hebrew schools which students attend in addition to public or uh, or secular private school to learn the Hebrew language, also dropped, with 556 of them shutting entirely. Now, each school is different, but they all said that one of their priorities was creating a sense of belonging. That's according to Rabbi Dina Klein of the Jewish Education Project. The enrollment drop comes amidst a broader fall-off in membership at some synagogues and independent Jewish religious programs, online communities, and new Jewish centers for a lot of Jewish people are challenging synagogues as the sole center of engagement. People who want to really explore their Judaism, according to Miriam Heller-Stern, a professor at Hebrew Union College, said, uh, she said, people who want to really explore their Judaism more culturally or ethnically, socially, they can do that without all of the religious obligations. And so I think that's interesting. I'm not sure what this portends for the future of Judaism, for the future of the Hebrew language, or for the future of a lot of Jewish cultural traditions that you learn about in Hebrew school. Now, the It's not as if Jewish culture is being erased. The number of children enrolled in Jewish day schools in the U.S. and Canada jumped 
by 43% during the same period. So the number of Hebrew schools of all stripes going down, the number of Jewish day schools going up. Um, I don't know, I don't, analytically, I really don't know what that means for the future. But I do think it's interesting, and it's a trend that I think is worth noting. If you have a theory as to why that's the case, beyond what I just mentioned, or you have a thought about what that might mean for the future of Judaism in North America, you're welcome to give me uh, a call, 800-848-9222. Matt Blaze, you didn't go to Hebrew school, did you? Absolutely. Oh, you did? I didn't go to yeshiva. Like, I went to no, regular no, public school. I understand, I understand, but you went, like, but I went after to he- school. Yeah. And, oh, oh yeah. you did. And were you bar mitzvahed? Yes. Right, 100%. and they never they never told you how wrong you were about paying for uh, for going to synagogue. <laughs> well, it was wrong about paying to go to Hebrew school. You had to pay, right? Well, that you had to pay for. Yeah, that's, you had that's to pay for sure. To join the temple. So are you yeah. sorry to see these Hebrew schools uh, shutter? Yeah, I mean, in terms of like you just said, it's not like the the Jewish traditions are being erased, but I think more and more American kids like me are not going to Hebrew school or continuing after. Like, I didn't continue. Once I was bar mitzvahed, I was done with Hebrew school. Though they encourage, they want you to keep going, but you don't have to because that's once you become a man or a woman, as they say, you don't have to go anymore. But you're also supposed to, after you make your bar mitzvah, start fasting on the holidays where you're supposed to fast and that yeah. kind of a thing. Did you do that? Uh, I've done it to a point. Like, I don't do it the way you're really supposed to, okay. is right. the way that I've I've done it. But, yeah, I started Hebrew school in third grade up until, so I was, what, eight? From eight to 13. What do you, know about, uh, what do you know about stretch limousines? <laughs> that they're going away? Yeah. Apparently? Yeah. You know anything about those? Can you speak to that experience at all? Of, of why stretch limousines oh, no, would be going away. Of being in a stretch limousine or how that I was have affected? been in a stretch limousine. The first time I was in a stretch limousine... I was seven. Oh. It was white, and we went to Forest Hills to a Barry Manilow concert. Oh, my. Uh, well, I hope you enjoyed it, because this is the eulogy for the stretch limousine. Once the ultimate status symbol, even if just for a one-night rental for the Barry Manilow concert or for a wedding or for the prom, society has now evolved beyond the stretch limo. The National Limousine Association, which is the uh, limousine equivalent of that Jewish nonprofit group that studied the Hebrew school shortage. The National Limousine Association says they comprise, stretch limos, less than 1% of limo company services today. That's down from 10% a decade ago. 1%. Now, that's nothing. Why? Well, they, they say there's a few culprits, according to the New York Times. And the, uh, the headline in the New York Times, I think, is very, very clever. Dims lights. Uh, it's, uh, it's called The Long and Winding Road. So they say the Great Recession rocked the primary client base and changed their spending habits. That's part of it. Coming out of the recession, affordable so- chauffeur services expanded in the form of Uber and Lyft. You know, that's a great point. If I was really looking to celebrate a special occasion, show some friends a night out on the town, I'd rent a limo. Now you rent an Uber for however many people you need. And it comes instantly and it's less expensive. Two prominent deadly crashes, one in 2015, one in 2018, also soured public opinion and led to stiffer regulations. 
And the Internet also happened. Attention was at a much greater premium pre-social media. And the limo was a reliable eyeball magnet. I remember when I was a kid, my parents would take me to a Broadway show or something or just into Manhattan for something. I'd see someone in a stretch limousine and I would just assume that they were famous because the windows were all dark and tinted. You couldn't see who's ever. So when I would be, you know, seven or eight or whatever, I would chase after this stretch limousine thinking that it was a famous person in there. And once in a while, one of them would wave at me. It was really, really kind of thrilling. But chances are they weren't that famous. So uh, attention was much easier to get with a stretch limo pre-social media. One of them pulls up. Most passers-by would crane their necks to see who was inside. Now, adulation's available on demand, just a couple of clicks away, and not at the cost of easily navigating cities. So you have the inconspicuous black SUV. That is the new standard in luxury transport. So it's going to be interesting to see how stretch limousines fare with Generation Z, uh, a generation that runs on surprise, really. I think it's probably going to be a little cliche. Um, in Portland, Oregon, for instance, they, kids there set a new standard last weekend, arriving at a prom in a rented World War II tank. Can you imagine that? But even if there's just one prominent limo left, um, it's going to be a pretty neat one because the U.S. presidential limo, the president's limo, the beast, is not going anywhere anytime soon. That is almost like a James Bond car. It's got weaponry. It's got gadgetry. It's got space for a a fridge uh, carrying a supply of the president's blood type. I mean, it's really very state-of-the-art. So Hebrew schools declining, the stretch limousine declining, your reaction, 800-848-9222. We're going to talk with Richard Dolan in just a minute on uh, UFOs and a bunch of things related to that. But a couple of you have been patiently holding. Let me try and get to at least one or two of you before we get to Richard Dolan. Leo is in Manhattan. Leo, you've been holding a while. What's on your mind? Frank, my question was, if you would let me in about 20, 30 seconds, give you a simple rule how you can learn pronouncing a lot of Slavic names, names and cities and so and so, if you let me. All right, go ahead. you got 20, 30 seconds. If, go it's, ahead. if it's I coming after D, P, or N, it makes it soft, like D, T, N. The new is about like uh, in Spanish, mañana, the new, in the, the sound in the middle. I give you an example. It's not Nikita Khrushchev or Nikolai Gogol. It's a Nikolai and Nikita. It's not Martina Navratilova. It's Martina Navratilova. And it's not Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. It's Vladimir, Gimir, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. Lenin. So Trump Mir is right. Trump, so Trump is right. It's Lenin. 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 Uh, uh, thank you, Leo. I still like the Trump pronunciation of Lenin, as they say. That was great. Um, 800-848-9222. Uh, I, you know what? Those of you that are holding, keep holding if you want. And then we'll uh, talk to Richard Dolan in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's 
The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. other side of midnight i'm frank morano it's no secret that we spend a great deal of time on this program discussing what used to be known as ufos which is increasingly becoming known as uaps and because of that in when i meet listeners in real life when listeners will email me or call in they will ask me one of my least favorite questions, which is, do you believe in UFOs? And the reason that it's one of my least favorite questions is because it's totally ridiculous and it's absolutely the wrong question. We have seen video after video, including by respected military sources and heard the audio of very accomplished naval pilots, among others, seeing UFOs, objects that are flying that they can't explain and they can't identify. So really the question shouldn't be, do you believe in UFOs? Because anybody that can see or hear should be believing in UFOs. The bigger question and the broader question and the much greater mystery is what are these objects? Someone who has spent several decades researching those questions is Richard Dolan. He is one of the world's leading UFO researchers, historians, and publishers. He's written four groundbreaking books. These include two volumes of history UFO on UFOs in the national security state and a book that explores what the world would be like after disclosure very pleased to welcome to the program richard dolan richard thanks so much for joining me on the radio hi frank it's a pleasure to be here richard what was it that sparked your interest in this field about three decades ago yeah it's been a little while i did not grow up thinking i would want to research ufos much much less spend my whole life doing it that was never my plan uh i guess my plan was to teach at a university that's what i thought I wanted to do. I love history. Uh, that's my professional training. And in fact, I was working on a PhD in history at the University of Rochester in upstate New York here. And uh, I did a lot of European history and a lot of U.S. diplomacy, national security studies. And that was really my direction, or so I thought. And I walked into a bookstore one day in the early 1990s, and I saw uh, what is actually, among UFO people, a pretty famous book, called Above Top Secret, and the subtitle was The Worldwide UFO Cover-Up. Uh, 
And I remember just looking at that book and thinking, oh, wow, this looks like a, this is a pretty big, fat book. What's in here? And I knew nothing about UFOs, but uh, so I wasn't a skeptic. I wasn't a believer. I was probably like most people just thinking, I wonder what's going on with that. But the, the thing that got me with it was, you know, here I was at the time studying. I was immersed in studying U.S. Cold War history. So I was all about Harry Truman in the 1940s and the 50s and, you know, the birth of the CIA and all of all of this uh, stuff. And and here I'm opening up this UFO book and here's this author who's talking about all of the people and the departments that I was actually studying at the time in my academic life. But here he is connecting them to the UFO subject. And it was this moment of like great cognitive dissonance that I had thinking, wait a second, how come I, is this real? And if this is real, how have I never once encountered this in a single scholarly book ever? Like what is wrong? Even if the, and I thought, even if these guys were wrong, these admirals, these CIA directors, these generals that he's quoting, uh, I said, even if they were wrong about their interest in, in these flying saucers, as they were called back then, isn't that interesting? Like, did the military ever figure out what these things were? Why were they interested? Uh, and all of these questions just just crashed into my brain, and I thought, all right, I'm going to buy this book, which I did, and I read it, and it was fascinating. It was, the author was Timothy Good. He's still around. He's a great author, great researcher, and that set me off to the races. And But even then, I didn't expect that I would just spend the rest of my life doing this, but what I thought I would do is spend maybe a month or two or maybe three months. And I thought I'm going to resolve this for myself. I want to figure out, is this a thing or is this not a thing? Is this something I need to know about in my study of history or not? I just, I didn't like having this big question mark hanging over my head and over the, the stuff that I was thinking I was going to try to be an expert at like, right. Is there something to this or not? So I thought, good. I'll just go in this simple, Easy peasy, read a few books, figure it out. Well, that's you know, that's what just pulled me into the quicksand because what I realized very quickly was that there were quite a few uh, documents that were released through Freedom of Information that didn't suggest, they didn't hint, they proved, absolutely proved that the United States military was encountering many, many, many times these UFOs, these flying saucers back in the 1940s and 50s and 60s and beyond in ways that did not make any conventional sense whatsoever. And it's one thing to you, know, you get a story from someone who's, who's credible and, you, and they're talking to you, but when you're reading a military document, a declassified document, and you're reading the actual accounts of a pilot who says – this was a solar white saucer. It flew right under my aircraft. I felt the bump from the air as it passed under me. That's literally in one report from 1950, 51. And there's just countless ones of those. Uh, you know, airspace violations of like our nuclear installations in the 1940s and 50s. And mm. you think about that. You go back to the 1940s. What's more important than America's nuclear uh, uh facilities. And yet what they were finding, this is over Los Alamos National Labs, 
the Hanford Nuclear Plant in the state of Washington, the Oak Ridge Nuclear Laboratories in Tennessee. These places and several others like that were scenes of repeated violations of airspace by objects that were described like flying saucers by highly qualified personnel. And then, you know, I read those and then I'm reading the responses of the generals and the directors of the CIA and high-level officials in CIA. It's obvious they were taking it very seriously. At the same time, they're telling the public, nothing to it, nothing to see here. And so when you start to see this discrepancy, I mean, I was hooked, I, I have to say. Like, it was, I was a couple of months in, I was totally hooked, and I have been <laughs> doing this ever since. Wow. It, it won't let go. So you came to it from a place of intellectual curiosity, and then what you learned about it once you started going down this road only made you more curious, essentially. Yes, that's right. And in fact, that's perfectly put. Um, every little answer that I would get <clears throat> would open up another dozen questions. Like, for example, it was like not just one rabbit hole. It was countless rabbit holes. So once I can persuaded myself that this was a, a genuinely serious problem for the national security elite in, in the 40s. They figured out that they're like, this is a problem. So once I, I realized that, then I asked myself, well, how the heck did they keep this under wraps? How do they control the media? How do they control the politicians? How do they keep this out of the academic world? where you know you would think someone would, would try to break through and, and talk about this. And that just led me into a, all of these other areas of study, basically a study of how the United National Security State, as I will often call it, manages all of the institutions of our society in part to elicit control, to maintain control over this subject. And this isn't the only subject, of course. I mean, in my opinion, this is just me. I think there's been a cabal of, of mafioso-like criminals running our system for a long, long time. But the UFO problem is one of the things that they are seeking to manage, and they will manage the media. They will manage the politicians, and they will definitely manage the academic world. And so it, it, the UFO phenomenon has just taken me into a very – I guess I could say a comprehensive review of not just all of American history, but really the history of the modern world. Well, you said quite a bit there, and I want to follow up on on a bunch of it, especially the aspect of the national security state. But before we talk about what the military knows and how they've used this information Talk to me a little bit about the differences or, or similarities between the military encounters of these UFOs or UAPs and civilians that have had sightings of UFOs or UAPs. Does the military experience tend to mirror the civilian experience? Is it different in some significant way? And if so, how? Okay, that's a fantastic question. So I haven't even really asked myself that, but I can I can. I think I can answer this. Uh, essentially, the, the, the experiences are very com comparable. So frequently what you will uh, – because I look at a lot of civilian UFO reports, of course, and they're often baffling. Uh, but what you'll see is 
late night. There's a lot of late night activity. These, these things are stealthy. In my view, whether they're dealing with military or non-military, they generally speaking, I don't think they want to be seen. Sometimes, sometimes they will be seen, but they're they. I mean, a typical thing. I I'll read a report from a, a person who'll say, "I was two, it was two in the morning. I couldn't sleep. I went outside, and I was able to see a like a black triangle or a black saucer hovering about 200 feet over my neighbor's house." Like, I cannot tell you how many times I'll, I'll read reports like that, and I'm thinking, what is this thing doing hovering over some neighborhood at 2 in the morning? Well, and then it, it would just glide off or it would, it would vanish or whatever. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of these mysterious, like these objects are hanging out. What are they doing? I ask myself this question frequently. What are they doing? Are they abducting people? Are they doing something else? They're doing mind probing. Who knows? Then with the military encounters, they are different in a way because with the military, a lot of the times these things will be encountered while – if it's like a Navy ship at sea or an Army base or an Air Force base, they will encounter an object when they are not expecting it. And in the military's case, they are, at least in theory, obligated to deal with it. At least in theory, they don't always deal with it. In fact, they often don't because I don't think that they can. Um, I was just looking at a couple of Navy cases just uh, two days ago, and in all of these cases, objects – I mean you've got these ships way out at sea, and they're encountering a craft sometimes seen exiting from the water that are then joining with larger craft – that have that were able, at least according to the witness, disable all communications and weapon systems aboard the aircraft carrier. This was a story uh, aboard the USS Franklin D. Roosevelt from the 1950s that I was just reviewing. I think it's true. I have another story about the USS John F. Kennedy from 1971. Very similar thing, where communications were shut down on the on the carrier for about 20 minutes. And, uh, and many more recent ones, too. These aren't just all the ancient times. So I think, I think the, the capabilities are very similar. Uh, these things can shut down an aircraft carrier. They can shut down weapons systems. Or if they're in your home, they can shut you down. Mm. They, if they don't want you to move a muscle, you're not going to move a muscle. So there's a tremendous amount of capability, in my view, when I – when I look at the reports and the stories and the testimony of a very wide range of people. So I don't know. I don't know if I answered your question. I think very so. Well, I, no, I, but... I think so. Um, uh, you, you alluded to the incident on the USS uh, Franklin Roosevelt in the 1950s. I think for me and I think a lot of our listeners, what made this issue mainstream was when The New York Times put these images on their front page in December of 2017 and released the videos from naval pilots uh, that were flying off the coast of the Nimitz in what I believe was uh, 2004. So what you're saying essentially is that the military experience with UFOs, it did not begin uh, 10 or 20 years ago. This goes back to the 1950s to the 1940s. That's exactly right. And in fact, it's, this is one of the issues that 
if there's one thing that I'm very concerned about, almost worried about, is how it seems to me, like when you get these Pentagon talking points now about UAP, which to me is their way of rebranding this whole subject, it's almost as if the whole thing just started in the 21st century for them, and, and it allows them to tell the public, oh, yes, we're looking into this. When we learn what this is, we'll get back to you, when in fact they have been dealing with this and trying to deal with this for an entire human lifetime. So with that is, with that in mind— It's very dishonest. It's well, very dishonest. With that in mind, then, so the military, at least the top echelons of the military— there seem to be two schools of thought about this with folks that I've uh, spoken to. Some people believe that the military is just as much in the dark as the public is. And there's others that believe the military knows exactly what's going on here. You seem to be in the category that believes that the military knows what's going on. Yeah, what I would well, I would qualify that. And I would say that a sliver of of people who have proper clearances within the military probably know what's going on. I, I would hazard to, uh, I, I would confidently say that the vast majority of the military, and this includes senior staff, very well may not have been briefed on this. I once had a conversation with a retired, uh, fairly high-level CIA, um, um, he was above officer level. He, this is a man who used to brief, brief U.S. presidents on certain matters. And uh, deep interest in the UFO subject and, and a lot of knowledge about it. And uh, it was kind of nice for me to be able to chat with him. And I at one point asked him you know, the question that everyone basically would ask is like, how high up does this go? Do the presidents know? And like we got into all of this. One thing he said to me was that uh, he's a very exact man. He said, in my retirement – I have had conversations with 18 individuals, he said, who were either former U.S. presidents, former secretaries of defense, or assistant secretaries of defense. So people at that level, right? So like the pinnacle of U.S. government power uh, structure. And he said, and in each of those instances, uh, I brought up, we brought up the subject of UFOs, or I brought it up. And he said their reactions fell into three categories. He said category number one, which he, he said exactly, he said was three or four people. He didn't say it was three. He didn't say it was four. He said three or four people. Their reaction was, oh, UFO, stop wasting your time with that nonsense. That's, that's ridiculous. He said another group, two or three people, he said, replied by stating, oh, yes, that's, I've been briefed on that. And uh, – just kind of acknowledged that this was something that they knew about. And then he said, by far the largest group of people, uh, probably more than 10 of them, their reaction was, oh, UFOs? What do you know about that? I, I, I have been trying to find out, and I have not been able to get a thing. That is literally what he said to me. And so I said, what are you telling me? Like, He says, well, what do you think? That the top formal uh, – leadership in the United States itself is locked out by and large of this subject. Uh, his belief, which I think that I agree with, is that you're dealing with a combination of public but also private, powerful interests that are working behind the scenes. And 
who really doubts that? When you look at the structure of power, forget UFOs. Just look at the United States government. We all know, everyone knows that the real power is always behind the president. It's the money. It's the, And so it's the same with the UFO subject. You have private uh, corporations and financial and – I mean I don't know who these people are, but this is what he has said to me, and I think it's true. You you raised an issue that I was going to bring up, and in your conversation with this uh, with this government figure about what presidents actually know, understanding that. understanding that uh, that uh, a lot of the power of the presidency is not with one individual, but with the public and private institutions behind that individual. By the way, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Richard Dolan. He's written a lot of books on this subject. They're available on Amazon. You can also check out his website, richarddolanmembers.com. There's a lot of great content on there, richarddolanmembers.com. Understanding that a lot of the power of the presidency is not within the individual itself, but um, behind that individual. What do presidents know? Does Biden know what's up? Did Trump, did Obama, did Clinton? Do these guys know what's going on? I asked him this very question, although I have to tell you, I asked him, this was a long time ago. So I asked him at the end of George W. Bush. So I asked him, this is a 2008 conversation that I was having with him. But we can talk about Biden. We can talk about Trump and Obama in a moment. But what this man said to me, he knew going back to Jimmy Carter, he said Carter was briefed. That's something that I've that a lot of us have thought. Carter was briefed in 1977, his first year in the White House. And and this man wasn't present at the briefing, but he had a very close associate who was there when the door opened and saw Carter apparently uh, deeply upset. Over the briefing, it was not. It is not known to this gentleman what was told to the president, but it is uh, pretty certain that Jimmy Carter was briefed in June of 1977. And uh, he said Ronald Reagan definitely knew. George Bush Sr. definitely knew, and he said, "I've never been able to figure out if Bill Clinton really was briefed or not." The word on the street was that Bill Clinton was not able to get a sufficient briefing on this, which personally I go back and forth on that. But then beyond Clinton, you've got um, George W. Bush, and this this uh, former CIA gentleman was very – he didn't know for sure, but he was very skeptical about George W. Bush. And what he had said was presidents come and go. Some are reliable. Some are not reliable. He said the professionals are there forever, mm. and they will. And he said, you know, also presidents have to be in front of the camera. They got to kiss the babies. They got to shake the hands of the dignitaries. It's like you've got hundreds of deeply classified, dangerous programs that are going on within the intelligence community, including dealing with UFOs. And he said, realistically, you got to ask yourself, how many of these presidents can really be on top of all of this? Truthfully, it's just it's almost not it's not humanly possible, even if a president is on his game and is very with it and wants to know that it's very difficult. So I think he didn't believe that George W. Bush was briefed as far as with Obama or Trump or Biden. We don't we don't really know. I, I suspect. Each of them has known something. I, I don't know about with Biden, 
uh, I think with Donald Trump, my sense has been uh, I always always pick Trump as someone who would be interested in the UFO mm-hmm. subject. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guy was a private citizen most of his life. He wasn't a career politician. And just the way Trump always has been is someone who's just like, yeah, I want to know. And I, I have, when Trump got elected, I was almost predicting a, a 2 a.m. tweet from him saying, hey, everyone, it's real. <laughs> like, I was, it was, but it never did happen. But, you know, Don Jr. is into the subject that was well known. And there were a couple of moments when Trump was president where the UFO subject was discussed. Uh, Lou Dobbs, who's a friend of Donald Trump's, clearly was interested in UFOs himself, talked to Trump about it. Uh, there's no question that Donald Trump has information about it. In my opinion, I think he knows. But the problem with, with Trump is that the entire intelligence community was at war with him. And the real question is, what what would they allow him to know? So you, you I think, put your finger on exactly what I think a lot of people are curious about. You talk about this permanent government that exists in Washington and within the national security apparatus, people within the intelligence community and the State Department that are there, irrespective of who gets elected to Congress or who gets elected to the presidency. At various times, this has been called the deep state, the permanent government, the national security state, whatever the case may be. A two-part question here. What role, as far as you're concerned, has the uh, deep state played in the UFO issue? And why does the deep state want this information kept from the public? What What's the worst that could yeah. happen if the public became aware of the truth? Excellent question. So to answer that, we have to rewind the clock, like basically 80 years back to the 1940s. So Pretend that you are President Harry Truman, and it's 1947, and Roswell just happened, right? So let's pretend that happened and pretend that this was all real, which I believe it was. I think it was an extraterrestrial event. That's my opinion. So if if that is so, Truman would have his top military people come to him and inform him. They would say, Mr. President, we have obtained – uh, technology that does not appear to have come from this civilization and bodies as well that don't appear to be human. So now you're the president. You have to decide what do you do about this information. Are you going to tell the world? You might want to tell the world. That might be your instinct. But I guarantee you your advisors would say, ah, hold on a second. We don't know the first thing about these beings. We don't know if they're friend or foe. We don't know what we're dealing with. You're going to open up this whole can of worms. And then what? And then also we've got this technology. Do we want to share this with the Russians? Seriously? These questions would clearly be front row center because it's one thing if you've got this technology, you're basically holding the future in your hands. The United States didn't want the Russians to have access to our atomic nuclear technology in 1947. That was a huge issue at Mm. the time. How on earth would they possibly want – to let the world know, oh, yes, we've got this stuff that's even better than nukes. Uh, No way. So there would be a lot of motivations from national security, the national security perspective alone, to say, no, let's provisionally keep this secret. Let's decide. Maybe in five years we can revisit this. But the problem with a strategy like that is that tomorrow never comes. Like you you never get to a point where you think, oh, yeah, let's share this because you think about the radical implications of, of a, a UFO, something that can hover 
without making a sound and then instantly accelerate or zigzag. Well, whatever that thing is using for propulsion, it's not high-octane gasoline. It's something beyond that, which implies, when you really consider it, an end to the petroleum era as our primary source of energy. Now, people would think about that, well, that's, that's great. Let's, let's move on. But in the 1940s and 50s, there was no petroleum shortage. U.S. was making money hand over fist with petroleum. And it seemed like there'd be enough forever. So, like, why rock the boat? So, so opening up the whole UFO subject and acknowledging it, uh, my feeling, my assessment is that it would only be a, a matter of time before the technology behind this would have to be discussed. And it would probably potentially cause a revolution that would be unsettling to those people who were running the United States empire, which is really what this is. We're, we've, we're like Rome. You know, Rome started as a republic. America started as a republic. Rome became an empire. And America, particularly after the Second World War, became a global empire. And so those, those men running that empire in the 1940s and 50s, the same men who killed the president in 1963 in the name of empire, they, they don't think like ordinary people. They are managing the world. And they will talk about democracy. They'll talk about freedom. Doesn't mean a thing to them. That's, that's all, that's all for, for show, of course. They are managing this. They're playing hardball. And so for them, giving up the UFO secret is just too much of a downside. And now, now that the secret's gone for so long, that's, that's a whole other problem. Richard, I'm almost out of time, and I'd love to do a part two because I haven't even scratched the surface with you about the a lot of the issues that you've been writing about for years. And I'm wondering if maybe we, next week we could pick a day to do a full hour. But I do want to ask you this. A lot of folks acknowledge the images that we all see, and they say one of two things, that it has nothing to do with extraterrestrials or something otherworldly. Essentially, that these these UFO sightings can be explained as misidentifications of natural phenomenon, or maybe mm-hmm. they're a technology from high-end military contractors, or maybe they are experimental technology from a foreign government. Uh, What do you say to those three theories, natural phenomenon, high-end American military technology, or foreign government technology? Yeah, I mean, all of those sound great in theory, as long as you don't read too many UFO reports. (laughs) When you start getting into the details, it becomes very difficult to make these arguments. And by the way, these were were arguments being made 80 years ago as Mm. well. This is an old game. And, you know, when you've got uh, – when you start reading one military report that talks about an object zigzagging and instantly accelerating, that's one thing. When you read 10 that talk about similar capabilities, then you have to start wondering, okay, what's actually going on? When you read 100 and you, you see how seriously the United States military behind the scenes has been taking this subject – while at the same time they are telling the public that it's misidentification of natural phenomena or uh, as the CIA did about almost 30 years ago, 1997, the 50th anniversary of Roswell, the CIA historian put out a paper that said, oh, yeah, all of those UFOs that people were seeing in the 50s, 
that was just us flying the U-2 spy plane, and we didn't want people to know. And when you read these arguments, the absurdity of it was so patently obvious. But here's the thing. They've got – I mean you're not part of this obviously, but when you look at the vast mainstream media apparatus, they take these reports from the CIA and they just plaster them and repeat them, and it becomes the mantra. It becomes the dogma. So the devil's in the details, and certainly there are cases of UFO reports that are misidentifications of natural phenomena. Of course, absolutely. There are uh, advanced aircraft that can be deceiving. Absolutely true. There, there are, you know, the human perceptions are not perfect. We are fallible. But the thing is, we're also pretty good witnesses most of the time. And so when you, you know, I, I don't, I've lost track of how many UFO reports I have studied, thousands, many thousands. And there are certain patterns that just come through again and again with them. And my faith is in the powers of human observation. And I do think most of the time, most people are pretty good witnesses. And so what I just seek to do is I read the reports carefully. When they get an investigation, that's good. Most of the time, UFO sightings don't get investigated. There's just too many. But uh, again, if you answer that question by delving into the details of individual reports, and I just don't think it's a legitimate objection that all of them are conventional on that basis. Richard, we're going to have to uh, leave it there. I do hope we can pick this up next week because I have a lot of other questions for you. Uh, We've been talking with Richard Dolan. Check out his books. Uh, You can go to his website, richarddolanmembers.com. Richard, thanks for the time. Oh, it was my pleasure, Frank. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Hey, Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Remember. To let her into your heart, then you can start to make it better. Hey, Jude, don't be afraid. You were made to go out and get her. The The Beatles singing Hey Jude. Uh, this was this song featured prominently, I'm not giving anything away here, in the most recent edition of uh, Ted Lasso. And it was used very cleverly in the most recent edition of uh, of Ted Lasso. Matt, did you happen to see the most recent episode of Ted Lasso yet? 
I only watched the very beginning of it, and then I was, like, falling asleep. So I was like, I'm going to wait and watch it probably today. Well, I won't spoil anything for you, although it was good. Not as good as the previous couple, but it was still good. All right, 800-848-9222, six open lines. If you want to comment on anything we have covered thus far, 800-848-9222. Hopefully you have something fun planned this weekend. My weekend is going to be interesting. We have the return of... Our post-show meeting today, after the show, and uh, I am hoping it is pretty soon after the show. Uh, otherwise, I will stay here two hours, get work done, because I do have a lot of work to get done, record things and edit things and do things, catch up on email, and then after two hours, when my parking spot is no longer free, I am gone. Gone, baby. Gone. So that's today. And then um, tonight's my night to cook dinner in the Morano household. And my wife, because it is Cinco de Mayo, by the way, happy Cinco de Mayo to everyone who's celebrating. My wife wanted to do some sort of Mexican food. So I don't know what we'll do. That can be kind of easy. You know, we'll do maybe tacos, maybe burrito bowls. So we'll see. Shrimp tacos are always a favorite. Or or burrito balls. I will I, after my after I awaken this afternoon from my slumber, I will immediately begin research on the optimal recipe. And you know what was annoying? I I texted all three of my siblings asking if they wanted to come by for margaritas later. Not one of them responded. I mean, you talk about rude. How do you not even respond? Say sorry, busy, or. Oh, I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. Can't make it. Other plans. No response. No response. So that was annoying. These these guys don't start shaping up. They may end up on my denunciation list. But um, then uh, I may, because I don't think we have any plans tonight, which is the first Friday in a while that I have no plans. But uh, I may, there is this group of friends that I get together with every Friday evening. And I used to get together with them every Friday evening, but actually now it's been probably two months since I was there. Because one of two things always happens on Friday night. Either I have plans with other folks or or Rachel and I have something planned or I'm just exhausted by the time Friday night goes around. And to muster the energy to travel 10 minutes can sometimes be a um, a great hardship. But we'll see. So I may do that, especially in, in light of the fact that it's Cinco de Mayo. Tomorrow, I had told you about this before, it is my goddaughter's first Holy Communion. So we're traveling out to Westchester for the communion and then presumably a brief party afterwards. And then we have no plans in the evening. And then Sunday, a friend of mine has uh, – Carmine has a swimming lesson, which I think his mother is taking him to. And then I'll get some work done. And then uh, we're we're going to a friend of ours sort of a birthday lunch. I still don't have a birthday present for him. I ran my suggestion over – by Rachel today, and she kind of gave it a lukewarm reception. This is what I was thinking. He he and his wife, great people, Dan and Jean, they have a great lake house up in Connecticut, and they have had us up there, and we have a good time up there, and it's fun. They really enjoy this lake house. I think you started out as a second residence for them. Now they both live up there full time. So I was thinking something lake-related, like a, a nice lake photograph or something along those lines, but... Rachel kind of gave it a wishy-washy response. So if you have a suggestion, let me know. Uh, otherwise, I'm gonna—I'll try and maybe get to the mall tomorrow and. 
get something lake related or something. So we'll see. All right. We got uh, denunciations coming up next hour. Thousand dollar minute still to come. 15 seconds of fame and more. More Tucker updates. You won't believe it. Until then, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I have become, I am convinced that I am the Sisyphus of email, right? You remember the, in Greek mythology, Sisyphus, he would constantly be pushing the boulder uh, only to find himself back at the bottom of the hill again. And that's the way I feel with email. I work so hard to get through all of my emails and um, I just can never do it. It The more I answer, the more they come. The more I answer, the more I come. I feel like Newman. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Denunciations momentarily. Those of you that are holding Larry, Anthony, Chris, I will make an effort to get to all of you. And uh, for those of you that uh, also want to be gotten to, chances are better of reaching me on the phone than via email. That's for sure. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com is my email. Also, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. A couple of people who email me on my regular email, they've been asking, well, what's that other email you give? They both work. They both go to the same place. But uh, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com is the one we're given these days. This way, everybody in the country feels very comfortable using that email. Our phone number, 800-848-9222. Without further ado, there are some people that have done some bad things. And I feel that I owe it to them and to you to call them out on it. And that's why we bring you this week's edition of... The Other Side of Midnight presents... Oh, yes, that's right. Uh, A lot of folks are worthy of being denounced. And I begin (laughs) with 12 members of the New York City Sheriff's Office. You know, this Sheriff's Office has not had a lot of scrutiny. Both the current sheriff and the previous sheriff, I get the sense they're just... As shady as can be, and pretty dishonest, honestly. But I'm denouncing the 12 members of the New York City Sheriff's Office who have been suspended without pay on Tuesday for taking liquor and other goods that had been confiscated from bars and clubs that were raided during the peak of the pandemic for violating shutdown rules. So... What happened was the sheriff's office would shut down these places. They said, I can't believe they're serving drinks in here. They shut it down, and then they steal the booze. This is ridiculous. Apparently, they stole the seized items from a storage unit in Long Island City, 
And some of the members are also facing discipline for filing false overtime sheets. Uh, among those suspended are an undersheriff, at least three sergeants, and multiple deputy sheriffs. You know, I don't want to be too harsh with these people, uh, but why aren't these people being fired? If I'm ever the New York City sheriff and something similar happens, you will be terminated. I will do a Ronald Reagan air traffic controller routine to you. In fact, I'm going to I'm just going to have these people go into room after room. You have Reagan saying you'll you're terminated on one monitor and then Trump saying you're fired on another monitor. So that's it. Hey, I want to also denounce uh, the head of the American Federation of Teachers, Randy Weingarten. Because uh, Randy Weingarten spoke to Congress last week, and we talked about it in the context of Marjorie Taylor Greene, but Randy Weingarten had a great deal to be ashamed of as well. Because Randy Weingarten cited a scientific study to argue to Congress that schools should have been kept closed at the height of the pandemic. Well, she completely fudged the study. That's not me saying that. That's the author of the study saying it. Dr. Tracy Hoeg, who co-authored a January 2021 study posted by the CDC that detailed low levels of coronavirus transmission in school, um, misrepresented the uh, – what Dr. Hoeg said was that Weingarten misrepresented the evidence in her testimony to the House Select Subcommittee on the coronavirus pandemic. The Dr. Hogue said in a lengthy Twitter thread, we saw remarkably low in-school transmission and no, repeat, no transmission to teachers. The fact the CDC was taking the advice of the AFT and not the scientists publishing on this topic in their own journal and without considering the data from Europe seems to have played a role in the massive error that left millions of U.S. kids out of school unnecessarily, 100%. By the way, that school closing for as long as it was is one of the great tragedies in my lifetime and I think in American history. And shame on everybody that was advocating for these school closures, especially Randy Weingarten. And you know what? You could say what you want about Bill de Blasio. You could say what you want about Donald Trump. Both of those guys were out there right away saying, let's get these schools open. As soon as it was clear that it was safe to do so, those guys, regardless of what you might think of them, both of those guys were saying, let's reopen the schools. And it was people like Randy Weingarten that were the hindrance to that. Now, look, hindsight's twenty twenty. I don't want to, um, you know, we, what you don't know, you don't know. But Weingarten misrepresented Hoag's study. As part of her testimony, Weingarten mentioned this study multiple times as evidence that schools needed layered mitigation to reopen. She said this in her prepared remarks, so she wasn't speaking off the cuff. cuff. And she said in her remarks that Hoeg was quite complimentary at the time about the work we were doing. Now, that's completely false. Hoeg was not complimentary at the time. And he was not consulted at when she put together her testimony. She lied. She was completely dishonest with Congress and, by extension, the public. Randy Weingarten, I do denounce you.
I must also denounce West Virginia. They are number one. They had a lot of competition. It's very, very tough. West Virginia is number one as the most overweight and obese state in the United States. Yes, that's right. According to WalletHub and the most recent data from the CDC, West Virginia is the most overweight and obese state in the entire country. More than 7 in 10 U.S. adults aged 20 and older are either overweight or obese. West Virginia is listed as having the highest percentage of of, uh, obese adults, the fourth highest percentage of obese children, the fourth highest percentage of overweight children. It is tied for first with having the highest percentage of adults with high cholesterol. Third in the percentage of adults with type 2 diabetes. And third in percentage of adults with high blood pressure. And apparently rates, uh, rising rates are due to this combination of genetic and environmental factors along with lack of exercise and increased intake of unhealthy processed food. Now, there's a lot of great listeners in West Virginia, and I don't mean to pick on you, but I'm mentioning this to highlight a real public health crisis. And I think something has got to be done about this. I don't know if we need to start airdropping Ozampic from the sky with an instruction, inject me. Uh, I don't know if it's a public awareness campaign or public education campaign. I don't know if we need more stringent physical education standards in school. I don't know if um, we need to do something about the kind of uh, food that's being served in school in West Virginia. but Or maybe it's some combination of everything that I just mentioned. But West Virginia has got to get get its act together here. This is really, really frightening. And not that the whole country is is the picture of physical fitness, but the fact that West Virginia is the most obese in a very obese country is a frightening situation for people that live there. West Virginia, I do denounce you. I must also denounce mobile phone use. A new study has uh, said that talking on the phone for 30 minutes a week increased risk of heart attack, stroke, and high blood pressure. Can you imagine that? Researchers are claiming that people who spend just 30 minutes talking on their mobile phone a week have a higher risk of stroke and heart attacks. A team of scientists said radio waves emitted by the endemic devices cause high blood pressure in users over a prolonged period of time. I believe this. I believe it. The experts said data showed those talking on a mobile phone for 30 minutes or more a week had a 12% higher risk of the condition than those who spent less time chatting. High blood pressure is linked to an increased risk of stroke and heart attacks, and around one in four adults in the U.K. has the condition. I'll tell you one of the reasons this study rings true to me. There have been a lot of instances where I'll have my mobile phone next to my computer or next to my computer speaker, And right when the phone starts to ring, the computer monitor or the computer speaker gets all gurgled and distorted. And that's from the radiation on the mobile phone. So if that's what it's doing to another electronic device, think about what it's doing to your insides. So I believe this. I believe this. So uh, this is from, this was written in the European Heart Journal. 
And we'll see where this goes. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more study on this. I want to denounce Jorge Ignacio Aponte Gonzalez. I, I just cannot stand people like this. This is a 41-year-old Florida dad who sucker punched an unsuspecting umpire who also happens to be a military veteran, but that's beside the point, the umpire, not the dad, during his son's high school baseball game last month. Jorge Ignacio Aponte Gonzalez threw the haymaker after his son began to mouth off at the popular umpire during the contest. That's the word according to the county sheriff's office down there in Florida. The umpire is obviously going to maintain control of the game because that's what they're there to do to make sure kids learn all about sportsmanlike conduct. Lopez said the that's the county sheriff, um, Marco Lopez. Lopez said the umpire, whose name was not released but who was 63 years old, told the youth, the young man, this guy's son, to compose himself. The kid was being disruptive, so according to the sheriff, the umpire's like, hey, tone it down. They went back and forth a little bit. I don't know exactly what was exchanged, but that is what upset the father. Let me tell you something. If my father, who at different times has been my baseball coach, different times umpired in Little League games that I was in, I I didn't make my high school team um, except as a freshman, so he wouldn't have had this opportunity in high school. But if my father ever saw me mouth off to an umpire... The one that he would be punching would not be the umpire. I mean, you wonder where kids learn this kind of behavior. It's from the kind of person that would assault an umpire. This is disgraceful. The problem of parents attacking league officials or even just razzing them is very serious. And, you know, look, I get excited by youth sports, and I'm sure if my son is participating, I'll be even more excited. You will not see me ever curse at or assault a youth sports official. These people are either volunteering their time or working for peanuts, and they're not professionals. And I mean, the fact that they get grief from people like you, it's disgraceful. And For you to teach your son that that's acceptable behavior, I mean, I don't know where to begin. I don't know where to begin. So, Jose, excuse me, Jorge Ignacio Aponte Gonzalez, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the Girls' Day School Trust in the U.K. You see, a teacher in the U.K., was pressured to apologize after she misgendered some students. This is an expensive private school in the UK, and the students are 11-year-olds, and they were reportedly displeased after the teacher addressed them with, Good afternoon, girls, at the beginning of a lesson. Some of the students told the teacher that not everyone in here identifies as female with others later writing their names and pronouns on the board for the teacher's edification. I give up. I I give up. You can't say good afternoon, girls, at what's clearly a girls' school. This teacher is basically forced with a gun to her head to apologize to these 11-year-olds. These 11-year-olds, 
Not everyone identifies as female. I, I give up. I, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. So I, the fact that this school trust, the Girls' Day School Trust, would not stand by the teacher. Okay, let's say she did accidentally misgender some of the girls or people. Is it that big of a deal? She clearly made an honest mistake. The teacher who spoke to the Daily Mail on condition of anonymity said the experience was humiliating and embarrassing. You know, I bet it was. I bet it was. There's no reason a teacher should have to go through this. You know what? If a teacher goes out of her way or his way to be insulting or to be a bully to a transgender student or something along those lines, by all means, discipline the teacher. Force the teacher to apologize. Maybe get, maybe suspend the teacher. But if a teacher makes an honest mistake, and I question whether this is even a mistake, but if a teacher makes an honest mistake and just says, good afternoon, girls, do you have to make a federal case out of it? What happened to just letting things go? Um, So I'm very disappointed in that. Girls' Day School Trust, I do denounce you. I must also denounce ESPN. During the ESPN on ABC broadcast of Game 1 between the Knicks and the Heat last Sunday, NBA fans noticed a jarring video used as the broadcast used a video of the Statue of Liberty. Very nice. But in the background of the Statue of Liberty, the Twin Towers could be seen. As we all know, the Twin Towers were destroyed in a terrorist attack more than 20 years ago. I I just don't understand how the people at ESPN or ABC say, huh, the game's in New York. We're going to show bumper shots of the exterior footage of New York, but we have none from the last 20 years. So let's show people a reminder of one of the most painful incidents in New York, New York history and American history and pass it off as if it's happening now. Maybe no one will notice that the Twin Towers are there, right? I mean, I just don't understand how that goes on. There's nothing more recent than 20 years ago? ESPN, I do denounce you. I want to denounce any college that is having segregated college um, graduation activities. These colleges are holding segregated graduation events. Multiple colleges across the country are holding different graduation events for students based on their ethnicity and their sexuality. University of Oklahoma, Illinois State University, Georgetown University, California Polytechnic Institute, Polytechnic State University, excuse me, Arizona State University, Grand Valley State University, and Harvard University are all having separate graduation events based on race and sexual orientation. This is just a small part of what's happening on college campuses. This is all in the name of diversity, equity, and inclusion. But I find this to be incredibly divisive. I don't find this to be inclusive at all. I mean, people during the civil rights movement worked so hard to end segregation in this country. 
And then for the 20 years after that, people all over the world, including in the United States, worked to end segregation in South Africa through apartheid. And yet these schools somehow think that bringing back segregated graduation events is going to help the cause of diversity? No. Having blacks and whites, Hispanics and Asians all be treated the same way and interacting with one another in a colorblind manner, that's what will help the racial situation. Not having separate but equal graduation ceremonies. This is I don't know who comes up with these things and says, yeah, that's a good idea. Hey, why don't we let the blacks do their own thing, the Hispanics do their own thing, the Asians do their own thing. Uh, maybe we get the Jews in a separate section, throw the women over there, the gays over here. I mean, and... I don't know how this idea comes up. And they say, oh, yeah, okay, let's go. Let's let's do it. So for all those colleges and any other colleges that are engaging in institutionalized segregation, I do denounce you. I must denounce Randy Johnson. Randy Johnson is on trial for being the courtyard killer. And, look, he is entitled to the presumption of innocence. So I'm not going to prejudge him. But I must say, he is seeming pretty guilty. I am judging him for his defense. So Randy Johnson, the so-called courtyard killer, uh, upstate New York, Poughkeepsie, trial began Wednesday afternoon before the Dutchess County Court Judge, Edward McLaughlin. This guy is facing very serious charges, facing life in prison, for the death of uh, Paul Cutts in the lobby of the courtyard by Marriott Hotel in Poughkeepsie. And the DA's office told the jury that they would hear testimony from another witness who was in the lobby when Johnson pointed a gun at her before firing and missing. So gunfire from Johnson's Glock, modified to fire in a fully automatic manner, struck Paul Cutts. And took the life of the 56-year-old who was in town to see his son at Marist College. And as guests were fleeing the lobby, the prosecutor says the defendant recklessly fired many more shots through the inside of that lobby, emptying the magazine before reloading the automatic pistol with an extended, larger-capacity magazine. So, why am I denouncing him? If we're not yet ready to convict him. Well, Joseph Galino, the attorney for this brain surgeon. Tells the jury it is 1000 percent true that Roy Johnson was firing the Glock firearm inside the lobby of that hotel. But then he gets to stressing the reasonable doubt defense. He implied that based on the pattern of the bullet holes in the lobby. Johnson could not have targeted Cuts directly and struck him only with only one bullet. The round that killed Mr. Cuts was not possibly fired from Mr. Johnson's firearm that he was firing in that lobby. Johnson's accomplice, Devin Taylor, was using a 22 pistol that day, and Galino said Cuts was not killed by Taylor's weapon. Devin Taylor pled guilty to his role in the death of Paul Cutts and has been sentenced to 22 years to life in prison. So this is absurd. So the defendant is trying the old, I couldn't have killed him. 
he was only shot once defense. This is insane. This is insane. Um, This lawyer should never be hired by anybody. The fact that he goes to a jury with a straight face and say, yeah, yeah, my client shot him, but that's not what killed him. Something else did. That's some defense. The way I was shooting up that place with my machine gun, I would have hit him at least a dozen times if it was me. I mean, that's the defense. It's so absurd. So uh, I have a feeling we know how this trial is going to end. If I were this gentleman's attorney, I would have tried to get him to take a plea, just like his co-defendant did. All right. uh, I want to denounce the Ohio Supreme Court. G-O-G. Why, oh, why, oh, why, ho, did I ever leave Ohio? Here's why. September 2020, Donald Bertram pulls up to Tiffany, excuse me, Timothy Huff's house as Huff did yard work. Okay, follow me so far? Got it. Donald Bertram hops out. He walks into the open garage and picks up a $500 leaf blower that did not belong to him, that belonged to Mr. Huff. And he drove off. Now, what would you call that? I would call it blatant theft. Well, that's why I would never make it on the Ohio Supreme Court. Because the Ohio Supreme Court on Wednesday ruled that Bertram did not commit burglary because he did it in plain view without force, stealth, or deception. Congratulations, Ohioans. You now have a license to steal as long as you don't do it with force, as long as you do it without deception and right out in the open. You got to be very brazen with your theft in the state of Ohio. So the court actually tossed out this guy's conviction. And then they said to the lower court, well, yeah, go ahead and convict him of misdemeanor criminal trespassing. This guy, and I think this was an excessive sentence, This guy had been sentenced to 8 to 12 years in prison on the burglary offense. But Huff told the jury that Bertram, that's the guy that was originally convicted, had a smile on his face, leading him to believe initially that he wasn't there to steal anything. When Huff told him to stop and put down the blower, Bertram put it in the passenger seat. This guy, the guy whose leaf blower it is, is taking pictures the whole time. And this guy just drives off. This is crazy. But sure enough, according to the Ohio Supreme Court, he did not commit burglary under Ohio law because he did not gain access to Huff's garage by force, stealth, or deception. Well, I know we have a lot of listeners in Ohio. If if you're going to steal, do it right out in the open. Don't use stealth. Don't use deception. Steal very openly. Jeez. Ohio Supreme Court, I do denounce you. All right. Uh, That concludes the denunciation portion of the program. If you have comments on anyone I have denounced, you are welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222. And uh, if you have comments on anything else we've covered today, you're welcome to comment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. 
don't even think of going to bed because we got a lot more fun stuff to come straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This could be in whatever taco joint you go to today, the kind of music you'll be enjoying. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank M O R A N O. I want to thank the um, Twitter user Sage Girl for tweeting the following Frank, I denounce you, improper capitalization of the word you, by the way, but that's not unusual for people that uh, denounce what? me to use improper punctuation and grammar. Frank, I denounce you for your boring drivel on radio about your relatives. Today, you tortured us on every insipid detail of your goddaughter. Please. (laughs) Now, I wouldn't say I gave every insipid detail. I didn't even mention that her daughter, that that, um, her name was Penelope. So now I suppose I have given you every insipid detail. Well, if you want to add some grist to our ever grinding mill, you can give me a call 800-848-9222. I will add, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that email me and I look at every email, I really do. But there's people that send me articles and I appreciate that, right? But there are some listeners, Robert in Maryland, for example, that email me a whole bunch of articles Maybe 10 a day, maybe 8 a day, whatever. And I'm happy to get them. A lot of times it's an article I haven't seen. But why do they need to send me a separate email for each article? They send me seven, eight, nine emails per article. So meaning one email per every article. And I write to this guy, Robert. I said, hey, Robert, thank you for this email. Thank you for this article. And there's no comment to it. It's just a link and a headline. And I make the decision if I want to read it or not. I said, Robert, thank you for this. But rather than send me an email per each article, why not send me one email with all of the articles that you want to send me based on the that show that day or based on whatever you're interested in me learning? Why not wait until you're done with your perusal of the news and then send me one email? And you know, you know I'm up against it here. You know I'm up against the gun. I have a minute to try and cycle through some of this email, and it's not helped by getting five emails that have five articles, two or three of which I've already read. Maybe just one email. One email. That's good advice for everybody. 800-848-9222. Joe is in the Queens. Hello, Joe. 
Yeah, Frank, I wanted to comment on this college equity stuff and, and diversifying the group. First of all, people are paying a lot of money at college. And if you're taking six courses in one semester, which I, I did a number of times, there's so much that's crammed in in that 13-week time period of 13, 14 weeks or whatever semester in. Plus, if you add one thing where you're trying to work out and say, run extensively, lift weights or something like that, uh, you know, I don't care whether I'm white, black, this or that. I, I don't have the time to think about this stuff. It's like if I'm trying to catch a train, am I white, am I black? I, I just have to catch the train. So I, I don't see where, you, you know, time-wise, there's an emphasis on this stuff. If you're in, like, that type of atmosphere where you're cramming a lot of information, you might have a paper that you're going to get graded on. You don't know how much time you need for the paper, how much research. It's ill-defined in terms of how much time you need, and it's always better to put extra time in just to, and, and not do stuff at the last minute. So it just doesn't make sense. Well, I agree, Joe. I mean, so and, – and thank you for the call – I don't know how that relates to what I was saying about the segregated graduation events, but I certainly agree. I mean, college is tough, but it could also be a very rewarding time where you forge new relationships, where you learn a bit about yourself, where you get to do things that you haven't done before. But I don't think the I don't think the best way to get the most out of the college experience is to reduce interaction with other races, genders or sexualities personally. So um, that's kind of where I come down on this. I'll tell you this. So I I have two water bottles. Well, three. I had one at work and I had one at home. And then the one I had at work went missing. Well, and so I ordered a new one. The one that I had at work has reappeared mysteriously uh, maybe two weeks ago. Okay. So now I have two here technically. But I just use one. And I like it. It's a 40-ounce water bottle, which means I usually just have to fill it once. Sometimes if there's a lot of water consumption going on, there's a lot of stuff I have to record before the show, but after the show, maybe there'll be one refill. Never more than one refill. And it's great. It saves me having to run to the water fountain to refill a water cup all day long. It's great. And unfortunately, it is plastic, and we are learning about at least some of the potential hazards of plastic. So at home... I said, all right, let me get a stainless steel water bottle. And they call it, I forget what they call it. I think uh, an iron flask, they call it. Stainless steel. It's great. It's hard. It's um, it's cool looking. It's, it's great. I love filling it. It's great. And Carmine likes it. It gets heavy for him because there's 40 ounces of water in there and it's steel. But he likes playing with it and he likes playing with the cap. He likes it. So a week or so ago, you got to understand, my wife, my wife is a champion cleaner, okay? And her sister Sharon is too, my sister-in-law. And they believe it's because uh, they're descendants of cultures, both Russian and Irish, that were very robust cleaners. And I know Sharon had this whole theory about it, and it made a lot of sense. But anyway, Rachel is cleaning all the time. If she's awake right now, if if she can't sleep or if she had to take care of our son, she is cleaning. When I come home later today, if she's awake, she will be cleaning. 
it when she's done with work, she will be cleaning. If she's not cleaning up after our son, she's cleaning up after the cats. She's straightening up. She's vacuuming. She doesn't just have a vacuum. She's got a, a, a Roomba, a robotic vacuum cleaner. She is cleaning all the time, all the time, right? It's one of her great passions. And I tease her about it because I've never met anyone that enjoys cleaning this much. And she says, no, I don't enjoy cleaning. I enjoy living in a clean house. And that's why, you know, we have three cats plus whatever cats we're fostering or recovering. There's a cat in our garage right now. And um, people who have cat allergies, they come over to our house. There's not even a sneeze because she's so fastidious in removing cat dander. The first thing she does when she wakes up is she will lint roll the couch and the, the ottoman and wherever cats hang out. So you get the impression. So she knows a lot about cleaning. She does. So a week or two ago, maybe a week ago, I'm looking at this iron flask. Now, this is stainless steel, my water bottle. What is the most important aspect of that description? In my view, the most important aspect of it is stainless it's not supposed to get dirty. Not supposed to stain. So I'm looking at this water bottle. I'm looking at the inside. And the bottom of this water bottle looks quite dirty. It actually looks pretty black. And my wife was working at the time that I noticed this. So I figured, all right, let me just refill this. She's working now. I can't talk to her. When she gets a chance and when I get a chance... I'm going to talk to her about the best way to clean this water bottle. Is this the kind of thing that you can just put in a washing machine? Do I need a special brush? What should I be using? I said, let me get one more use out of it. And I'll talk to her about it tonight. So anyway, I fill it and pretty much just forget about it. I woke up yesterday afternoon and I got reprimanded for three or four different things. And she said, and the last thing I'm going to yell at you about is I looked at your water bottle. It's disgusting. I looked inside there and this her words, I don't know if it's accurate. She said, you have black mold inside there. You, you've essentially been drinking black mold. So, And then she shows me these before and after pictures. And I, I must say, they do look pretty... So, uh, there is a significant difference between the before and after. I'm going to post them on my Facebook page a little later today. So follow my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan, and I will show you what she's uh, what she's talking about. So she says that this water bottle now needs to be cleaned a minimum of twice a week. And she said, what do you mean you don't know how to clean it? Just There's a brush. Just stick the brush in the water bottle because it's a tall water bottle. And just get whatever's in there out of there. Throw a little soap and rinse it and use this brush, and you'll remove the mold. She said, if you don't feel good, it's because you've been drinking mold. I said, I feel fine. feel great. So that's that. Now, I am drinking right now from a plastic 40-ounce water bottle, and I don't know... When the last time is that I've cleaned this, I'm not sure that I've ever cleaned it, honestly. So I'm going to bring this one home today and give it a thorough cleaning as well. I think I'm going to 
get my water bottles on a, at least my at-home water bottle, on a Monday and Friday cleaning schedule. And then I'll bring this one home on Friday at the conclusion of the work week. And I'll clean this one once a week. I'll do my home one twice a week. I'll do this one once a week. Sound good? I hope so. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Anthony is on Staten Island. Hello, Anthony. Hey, how you doing? How's everything? Uh, big fan of the show. Thank you. That's awfully nice. So you appreciate that. Uh, earlier in the show, you were talking about uh, a gift uh, for a friend of yours. And uh, I thought uh, I thought about it, and I thought that uh, I want to let you know that I have a, a small family business. It's called ALT Flags. Um, it's named after my three sons, Anthony, Luke, and Tyler. Um, and I make uh, custom American flags. And uh, I'm on Instagram. You should definitely give it a check. Uh, check out. And I just want to mention that to you. And uh, also, uh, just really quickly, um, I have a program called Flags for Families of First Responders. Mm. Um, we, pr- yep, we proudly donate a flag to the family of a first responder whose child is uh, suffering a life-threatening illness. Well, that is wonderful. I'm looking. So you, do you guys not have a website? No, only on Instagram at the moment. Okay. And uh, uh, ALT soon, flags. Soon I, yep. ALT flags. Yep. Well, how do I buy something on here? So basically, basically, you just have to message me, and I'll, I'll uh, go go down the the whole process with you. Well, that's cool. Hey, um, can you email me, and maybe I'll buy a flag from you uh, also. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. So you have my email, uh, right? Or no? You, I'm going to put you on hold. Kenneth it, will give it to you. Okay. okay. Uh, I'm going to put you on. Thank okay. you, Anthony. Good luck, and uh, people should check you out. Alt flags. You know, speaking of flags, flags are a great gift. You know what's flying in front of our house is we have the American flag and the New York State flag. And I'm working right now – well, whatever. I'll, I'll save that story for another day. But the American flag was a gift from Peter King. And it's a flag that flew uh, – Peter King, if you don't know, is a former congressman, great guy, wonderful person. He, and it was a flag that flew over the U.S. Capitol. And it's really special to me. To have this flag flying in in front of our house that was flying over the Capitol. I wish I would have thought of that because I have friends that are in Congress. I could have gotten one of them to give him one of these flags. Now, I'm not going to be able to get it by Sunday when um, I don't think I can. I don't think I can get a flag by Sunday that he uh, when we see him for his birthday party. So we'll see. Um, well, maybe, maybe there's no harm. I'm going to text one, one of the congressmen I know now and see if we can't do it. All right. 800-848-9222. Chris is in Ozone Park. Hello, Chris. Hi, dear Frank. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you. I hope you are too. Yes, I'm very well. I've only waited four hours to get on. Well, now take as much time um, as you want, Chris. Okay. I was wondering if you knew why when you buy a pair of sneakers, the, the laces are like three feet long. Like, what are you supposed to do with all that, that extra lace? You know, that is such a good question because you're right. Whether you're wearing a size 7 or a size 20, the the lace is huge. Now, I guess they do that because the shoe manufacturer has to make sure that the shoe that all shoes can be fully laced up. So I think what may be occurring, and I don't know, uh, but I I will look this up, but I think what may be occurring is they made the length of the shoelace for the longest possible sneaker 
the same length for every shoelace. This way, shoes don't have to be returned just because the laces are too short to tie. That uh, is my best guess as to uh, what the story is. But you're right. It certainly is an inconvenience. I'll tell you what I do, Chris, and thank you for the call. And I'm sorry you waited so long. What I do is I wear, I buy shoes without shoelaces. That's it. Wearing a nice pair of, these are my weekend shoes because it's Friday. I'm wearing a nice pair of slip-on loafers right now. Not a single lo- um, lace to be found. Hey, did you ever see the movie Frost Nixon? It's a great picture. And I, I never saw the play, but I'm told it was a great play as well. But there's a wonderful little subtext in that picture about Nixon getting obsessed with um, with Frost's shoes. And he's got shoes without laces. And he says to his aide, who I, I think might have been George Schultz. My, I think it was Schultz, but I, don't quote me on that. He's asking about the shoes and everything. He's asking Schultz about Frost's shoes. And... Um, Schultz, who's played, I believe, by Kevin Bacon in that picture, says, well, no, I think a man's shoes should have laces. (laughs) It was just so funny that he was so adamant about that. All right. A lot of Nixon talk today. And usually that means that today is associated with some date in Nixonian history, as go the laws of synchronicity, right? Uh, So far, there's no date that I'm aware of yet, but we'll see. All right, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. In the jungle, the mighty jungle, the lion sleeps tonight. In the jungle, the great jungle, the lion sleeps tonight. The lion sleeps tonight. Hopefully, if you're awake right now, you're not sleeping. Because that means you're listening to me. I have um, talked about this before. My favorite food is eggs. I love eggs in all of their forms. If there is a way to serve an egg, whether it's scrambled, whether it's over easy, whether it's over hard, whether it's sunny side up, whether it's poached, whether it's hard boiled, whether it's soft boiled, whether it's shirred, whether it's baked, whether it's in omelet form, every possible way to serve an egg, I just love it. I mean, I have tried to reduce my egg consumption because of uh, the egg shortage and the prices, but I did have an egg a couple days ago. And what I've been doing is, and my wife does this, I think she has eggs just about every day, but she doesn't want too much cholesterol, and eggs do have cholesterol. So what I've been doing is uh, kind of what she does, is you take one egg, and then we also have a separate container of egg whites, and then we'll put the whites in 
in with one whole egg. So you get basically maybe two or three egg whites with one egg yolk. And uh, I, that commercial really spoke to me from the first moment I heard it. They're as fresh as the breeze. Eggs come to you fresh every day. Serve them any way you please. Eggs are natural and economical, so keep enough on hand. Nature made them nice and neat. High in protein and only 80 calories each. Eggs are a natural wonder for meals, snacks, appetizers, whatever. All you do is heat. You gotta love the incredible edible egg. Well, anyway, a lot of people are like me, where they enjoy eggs and they see the benefits of protein. But eggs is one of those foods, a lot like milk, a lot like um, coffee, where one week it's good for you, then the next week it's not good for you. Uh, beef is like that sometimes, where they act, oh, yeah, yeah, no, 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 nature's perfect food. Yeah, you got to eat that. Eat as much as you can. And then next week, it's, no, 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 whatever you do, don't eat eggs. So eggs is one of those foods where, depending on the day, it's either great for you or terrible for you. So one listener sent me this article in USA Today all about eggs. And it's a pretty objective article, and it explores whether eggs are good for weight loss or not. It looks at egg yolks versus egg whites. but then. And this is the portion I'm going to share with you because I think people who are similarly egg-static about eggs as I am would be interested in this. People ask the question, is it okay to eat eggs every day? Because um, as, you know, one person, a nutritionist with the American – one nutritionist quoted in the article says, they do contain a large amount of cholesterol, and for that reason, many guidelines have recommended limiting eggs. The American Heart Association, for instance, recommends averaging just one egg or two egg whites per day. Another nutritionist quoted in this USA Today article agrees with that suggested amount. Due to the cholesterol and saturated fat found in eggs, but said the recommendation could be even more limited for those with elevated cholesterol or cardiac issues. It's always important to check in with your health care provider before you make those sort of decisions. You know, um, I, I'm a big fan of The Simpsons. And uh, there's this one episode of The Simpsons where Homer tr- uh, is determined to gain a whole bunch of weight so he qualifies for disability and doesn't have to go to work. And so he goes to his doctor and says, well, can, can you help me with this? And the doctor says, no, absolutely not. I'm not going to do that. It's unhealthy. And then Homer asks him, can you recommend a doctor who can? And then he says, yes. And he refers him to this quack doctor. And that's the way I feel whenever I see one of these articles that say, um, check with your doctor before you do this or check with your doctor before you do that. I always tend to think, well, if the doctor gives you information that you don't want, you're going to find a doctor that will, right? So that's it. That's the latest on eggs. They recommend limiting one full egg per day. But they say you can bank your eggs. So like, I'll, maybe I'll have two on a Saturday and then skip a couple of days. All right. Big weekend this weekend, especially for horse racing fans. We'll get into it. Your influence counts. Be sure to use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, I'm not 
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Today is Cinco de Mayo. Cinco, Cinco, Cinco de Mayo. A day for margaritas, a day for burritos, a day for tacos. In our household, the Morano household, it is a day. My my wife is an enthusiastic Mexican food fan. She would eat Mexican every day. She feels the way about Mexican food that I do about Japanese food. I could do Japanese food every day. That's how she is with Mexican. But um, in our house, I am responsible for dinner today, and I can't order, which is quite a cruel irony because my mother gave us a bunch of gift cards to a Mexican restaurant recently that my wife happens to like. But the rules of our dinner preparation agreement is that I have to prepare the food, and we can't purchase it. I don't know if there's a gift card exemption, and I have a feeling that if there's a choice between – eating poorly prepared Mexican food by me or going around the corner to a convenient Mexican restaurant that we have a couple of gift cards to. I'm wondering what may win out in the end, but that's neither here nor there. Now, every so often, Cinco de Mayo falls on the same day as another August event. Often, The Cinco de Mayo celebrations, May 5th, fall the same day as the most exciting two minutes in all of sports, the Kentucky Derby. Not this year. The Kentucky Derby is tomorrow, and I I, I am going to watch it. I have a very conflicted relationship with horse racing in general and the Kentucky Derby in uh, specifically. I believe the the favorite um, is, I'll t- is Forte, F-O-R-T-E. He's the favorite. But um, I like horse racing. I like to watch it. I like the, um, the uh, my Uncle Carmine and Aunt Camille took me to a racetrack a couple of times as a kid, and I really enjoyed it. I also really enjoy the gambling aspect of it. I like, um, you know, kind of playing the odds, finding a horse that's going to pay you a decent amount of money. Do you go with a favorite? Do you go with the long shot? Do you go with an exacta? Do you go with the trifecta? Do you go with the superfecta? I enjoy it. I really do. I enjoy the gambling aspect of it and the you know, seeing the horses and that kind of a thing. Additionally, with the Kentucky Derby specifically, it's really like a holiday. And you get to see you get to see them sing that that Kentucky song, whatever it is, my Kentucky home. You get to enjoy mint juleps, and I always kind of like when Cinco de Mayo is the same day as the Kentucky Derby because it's an excuse to have both margaritas and mint juleps the same day, and it's only two minutes. 
So everyone, you know, watches the race for two minutes and then you go back to what you're doing. A lot of fun. A lot of fun. I'd say one of the most fun social activities I've ever engaged in was about uh, 14, 15 years ago when uh, a friend of mine who unfortunately passed away, it was Cinco de Mayo and Kentucky Derby the same day. And we would just go from margarita to mint julep, which I don't recommend. Margarita to mint julep, margarita to mint julep. And then there happened to be a very exciting Met game going on that same day. So we would watch the two minutes of the Kentucky Derby and then go right back to watching the Mets. And they had this incredible extra innings come from behind victory. It was just so exciting. And so I always associate my feelings of this weekend, when you have Cinco de Mayo and the Kentucky Derby in the same weekend, with that good time. Um, However, I have gradually come to believe that as much as I enjoy horse racing, I've come to believe that it's probably animal abuse and that it's wrong for me to watch it and to patronize it and to support it. So Bob Barker, who is an animal rights activist, and he's someone that I really look up to as a broadcaster, as a person, still going strong at 98. Well, I mean, I don't know how strong he's going. I haven't heard from him in three or four years. But last I spoke to him, he was going strong at 95. And he and I spoke about horse racing about seven or eight years ago. This is what he said on the subject of horse racing. Do you think horse racing is animal abuse? I certainly do. I I think that uh, there are so many so-called entertainment-type things that are animal abuse. Rodeos, horse racing. Horse racing is terrible. People think these horses are so well-treated. They are raced to the point of death. They are drugged. They are uh, mistreated in various ways and, uh, and suffer terrible deaths sometimes. But rodeos are terrible. Uh, you, your advice, if you care about animals, would be not to patronize sports, uh, so-called sports like horse racing or, oh, and things no. like that. You no. Know. So Don't that's set foot in those places. Now, how am I going to argue with Bob Barker? The guy has worked his whole life towards the cause of better treatment for animals and has worked towards being informed about animals. And this is a controversial issue in New York as well because Governor Kathy Hochul which this is a joke and it's a total giveaway to her campaign donors, but most of the things that she does are giveaways to her campaign donors. Don't get me started. Governor Hochul's plan to invest in Belmont Park racetrack on Long Island um, for $455 million. People are critical of the money for what some people say is a dying industry. And the state of New York for the last 15 years has subsidized the horse racing industry to the tune of nearly $3 billion as attendance has dropped off sharply. And part of the reason that attendance has dropped off sharply is because of the activists, the activists who have raised serious concerns about how the horses are treated. Now, I would love for uh, now a lot of people say the racing regiment is a cruel one for the animals. I would love it. There was an episode of The Twilight Zone. I think Lee Marvin is in this episode where it's the future and boxing is outlawed. And so what they do is they still have boxing, but it's done by robots and human looking robots. And it's a cool episode. I really enjoyed this episode. But I would love it if you could still have everything that there is to enjoy about horse racing, the mint juleps, the fun hats, 
the uh, great songs, seeing the uh, the beautiful landscape of Churchill Downs, seeing the the culture of Kentucky Derby, having the nice parties, and having the the Southern statesmanship and Southern charm. I would love if you could have all that and have it be maybe robotic horses. Now, I don't know if that's practical because then you get into the realm of the horse races being fixed and that sort of a thing. But I do feel bad for these horses. You see stories about these horses being beaten, suffering from heart attacks, how they drug these horses so that they can get deal with an optimal performance. And I do feel bad. So what I would love to know from you, do you think horse racing is unethical? Do you think horse racing should be permitted? Do you think horse racing should be, um, do you think I should watch it? Tomorrow's a derby, 8.30. I'm sure I'll be somewhere where there's a television set. I'm sure I'll be with people that will want to watch the derby. Should I? Or should I leave the room? Should I refuse to turn it on? Should I get off this horse train? What do you think? 800-848-9222. It's 800-848-9222. Fans of horse racing in this country. American heroes or American zeros? A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited... I wish when I was thinking about plotting out this show and knew I was going to bring this up, I wish I would have reached out to my friend John Durso because he works for the New York Racing Association and he would have been a good voice to call in or at least record something from the pro horse racing perspective because my ex-girlfriend's grandmother's ex-boyfriend, so you could tell we're very close, but this fellow John, very very nice guy, uh, he was of the belief that it is not animal abuse. He said the animals are treated well and that um, he had a whole defense that made sense as to why these horses were not mistreated and why it wasn't animal cruelty. So is Bob Barker right or is my ex-girlfriend's grandmother's ex-boyfriend right? 800-848-9222. James Cromwell, who I believe is a vegan, so you can imagine where he is on the horse racing issue. He narrated this video for PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, about horse racing and animal abuse. And uh, here was James Cromwell. I'll bet you that at least three horses will be killed on a racetrack today. Unfortunately, it's a safe bet because every year, more than 1,000 horses die on racetracks across the United States. So the odds are that there will be three gruesome deaths each day. What if all professional sports had this fatality rate? Imagine if three NFL players were killed every Sunday. The horse racing industry keeps this figure quiet and literally puts up screens to blind viewers from the carnage. So I am dealing with an internal conflict. What should I do? And do you have a similar conflict? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. By the way, yesterday was Throwback Thursday, and I'm in the mood to play around with my new mobile phone, my new Google Pixel 7 Pro. Um, and I was going through a lot of my old photos. So I said, why don't I throw up a, a Throwback Thursday photo on Instagram? So that's what I did. I found this picture from about five years ago. 
of my friend John Tobacco, who's been a guest on the show before, and he's a close friend, a good guy, and me uh, visiting the New York Stock Exchange. Now, as you might imagine, if you've heard John before, John Tobacco is sort of a Wall Street titan. Not to say that he's the richest guy on on Wall Street. He's certainly not. But he is the guy on Wall Street that everybody knows. So I said in my caption on Instagram, and you could see it at Morano Vision, that's M-O-R-A-N-O Vision. I said, going uh, throwback Thursday to whenever, uh, September of 2018, October of 2018, when I visited the New York Stock Exchange with uh, John Tobacco, going to the stock exchange with John Tobacco is like going to Yankee Stadium with Don Mattingly. And I thought that was kind of fun. So then I said, well, you know what? I think I have a photo of Don Mattingly and me. So I, I found this photo of the day that I met Don Mattingly. He was a guest on a radio show that I was producing. And uh, it was a nice photo of the two of us. And I said, all right, I'm going to throw this one up there on Facebook at facebook.com slash Fan. And I said in my caption for this photo, I said, um, being in New York with Don Mattingly is like visiting the stock exchange with John Tobacco. Now, a lot of the people who saw that Don Mattingly photo don't get the reference because, and the only people who would get the reference are people who follow me both on Instagram at Morano Vision, M O R A N O Vision, and on Facebook. So it's only funny. It's one of those things that was only funny to me. But now that you know about it, it's funny to you, hopefully. So you could see that uh, Mattingly photo for Throwback Thursday on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan, and see that John Tobacco photo on Instagram at Morano Vision. All right, horse racing, good or bad, something in between. I love nuance, as you know. Ray in New Haven, what say you? Good morning, Frank. Um, it's Ray in Woodhaven. I'm as pro horse racing as you can get. Been a fan for well over 50 years. It's like anything else. At its best, these horses are impeccably bred, impeccably cared for. The farms, the breeding farms in Kentucky, are some of the most beautiful in the world. And it's not a coincidence that the sport is called the sport of kings. When you see the horses in a race like the Kentucky Derby, they're owned by, for example, Godolphin Stable, which is the Saudi Arabian power uh, people. Forte, the favorite, is owned by Mike Rapoli, who uh, invented vitamin water. He has probably the biggest racing stable in the United States. And his horses are cared for throughout their career, then put out to retirement and stud. Now, at its lower levels, you've got trainers and jockeys and, you know, horses that are too slow to compete in any meaningful way. And those abuses that you're referring to are mostly at minor tracks. And uh, racing's trying to clean itself up, but it's difficult because people are greedy. And if they can make a few dollars by doping a horse, they'll do it. But at its top, like the Derby, Preakness, Belmont, it's a tremendous game. The horse, I believe, is the most beautiful animal in the world, and I love it. So I shouldn't feel guilty, in your view, about watching this Kentucky Derby tomorrow? Absolutely not. These horses that are running in the Kentucky Derby wouldn't be here if it wasn't for being bred all the way down since Man of War 
You know what I mean? <laughs> they, uh, they're not just common animals. They're not walking the streets of New York pulling carriages. These horses are groomed perfectly. They're bred perfectly. They're cared for impeccably. They get the best medications, the best veterinarians, and it's big-time business. Well, thank the race you. itself is worth about $3 million. Thank you, Ray. Well, I don't question the business aspect of it. What I'm questioning is the, the moral aspect of this and the ethical aspect of this. And, look, I, I like what I'm hearing from Ray. He says the, the horses are well taken care of. You do see a lot of these horses, not a lot, but you do see several horses, as you heard from Cromwell there, die in the course of this. And there's just something I can't get over when you see these races and you see the jockey so aggressively whipping this horse to go faster and go faster. It just doesn't look right to do that to a horse. And that's what I'm wrestling with. Uh, and I hope you're right, Ray, because I do want to watch this race tomorrow and and, and enjoy it. I don't want to watch it like, um, you know, uh, like I'm wa- enjoying a guilty pleasure. I, I want to watch it and feel good about watching it. But is that unrealistic on my part? 800-848-9222. Steve is in Baltimore. Hello, Steve. Hey, how you doing, Frank? Good, thanks. So, uh... This horse racing thing, um, I have an opinion on this. So years ago, I was very into betting on horse races, and I learned from a Jamaican friend of mine, and it's a whole science to it. it, it it's not just real easy stuff. You have to do a lot of oh, research. I know. You have I know. to put a lot of work into it. There's a book you get every week, and you have to look at this book and examine it, and you got to pick out which races you want to bet on, which horse, what did he do last week, how's he doing now, where was he raised? Who was his owner? All this information, all this research. But what it came down to, who won the race, which one got doped? Mm. And this came out just a few years ago. There's a well-known trainer named Bob Baffert. And he was winning like crazy. Right. I mean, all kinds of money. Yeah, that was, came out. Yeah, he, he was, was cheating. cheating. He was cheating. Yeah, yeah. We, we talked about that so, at the time. After all this work you do, after all this research, it comes down to which horse, who's cheating? Which horse got doped? And you have no way of knowing. So you could lose your ass. Sorry, excuse me. You could lose your butt just because somebody's cheating. But you knew which horse should have won. Right? Yeah. No, as far I... as uh, whipping horses and stuff like that, I will tell you this. My daughters rode horses in competition as far as uh, jumping and showing. And horses are like people. Some of them are lazy. Some of them are great. There's some horses, yeah, you have to whip. You have to get them to move. They're in a bad mood. They don't feel like working that day, whatever. There's other horses, and they love it. They love to show. They love to jump. And if you ever watch the movie, I think it's Secretariat, you can see a horse that wants to race, that wants to win. And there are horses like that. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate that. Have a good weekend. You know, it's funny. I'm often asked, someone just asked me recently, what's your favorite gambling picture? And the answer is, the answer, it's up there. I don't know if it's my favorite, because Casino, I just love. Casino's probably my favorite, but is it really a gambling picture? I think it's a mob movie set in Las Vegas. I don't think it's a gambling picture. But anyway, there's a wonderful gambling picture called Let It Ride. 
Richard Dreyfus, Terry Garr, David Johansson. This film, it's never on TV. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Of course, I saw it on Netflix years ago with the DVDs, not on streaming. You can get the DVD. But, um, and I love Richard Dreyfus. That's why I am hoping Brian Kilmeade has him on his Saturday night show this weekend because I like a lot of what Dreyfus is doing now in terms of uh, civic education. And I'd love to get him on this program to talk about it, quite frankly. But anyway, um, this film is all about horse racing. And how exciting the betting of horse racing is and the different things that are involved in, in horse racing. It's really uh, a, a fine film. By the way, Richard Dreyfus, in addition to being on with um, Kilmeade possibly tomorrow, he was on with Michael Smirkanish last week, April 28th, talking about the importance of teaching civics. And I agree with Dreyfus completely on this. And this is what I want to invite Dreyfus on to talk about. I spoke to Richard Dreyfus earlier. He's the founder of the Dreyfus Civics Initiative and author of One Thought Scares Me. We teach our children what we wish them to know. We don't teach our children what we don't wish them to know. Richard Dreyfus, what don't we want them to know? Right now, we are deeply committed to uh, turning them away from any knowledge of how this country is run, how the Constitution works, what the Bill of Rights is doing inside the Constitution, and anything else that gives them a, a heads up and, a, and an open brain, because we were, after all, the most important political revolution in the history of mankind. And no one today knows what the hell I just said. It's true. It's true. This is one issue where there should be no debate. I don't care if you're liberal, conservative, uh, independent, libertarian, green, vegetarian, whatever. Civics education ought to be a priority, and it's not in in schools today. It's it's really not. All right, back to horse racing. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Nick is in Queens. Hello, Nick. Hey, Frank. First of all, good luck at the uh, you meeting with the commission. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. I'll meet it. (laughs) <laughs> Second of all, I'm going to give you an interesting parallel. Uh, the circus, which I brought my kids to every year, and there was a large contingent of uh, animal rights people that were involved in the circus to make sure that these animals were taken care of uh, correctly. You know, the difference is the circus is gone because there's not billionaires sitting at every uh, circus event around the country. So I, I don't think you have to worry about um, watching the derby. It's been around for uh, for years and years, and I agree with your first call that that, uh, that these animals are well uh, are well well taken care of. Well, yeah. but um, the circus is is back, but it's just back without animals. Now they without have clowns, animals, right. they have uh, acrobats, they have other sort oh, other sort of things. Thank you, Nick. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Pamela is in New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Hi. Um, yeah, the argument that uh, the horses are treated well better than you know other animals because they can afford it it's kind of like the analogy like oh our slaves are treated really really well (laughs) you know it it just you know there's money and gambling involved and you know i just heard this weekend that uh i think it's new york state three horses died yeah Uh, i i didn't know i didn't know i didn't know that that was that that high that that happened but yeah it doesn't surprise me honestly yeah, so the argument that they're, you know, and 
and you know i'm you know a lot of times animal activists can be kind of uh way out there like you know they call them tree huggers and everything but oh oh i saw a whole documentary on the world of horse racing and it is terrifying uh there's it's really really uh, if you can find it somewhere it, it's the inside scoop on horse racing what's it called and uh, you know it, it was about uh the owners and what goes on the competition the drugging the uh and in some cases uh murder um it's very rough 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 field and to say oh they're treated so well there's there's money involved in it and yeah right yeah yeah uh, yeah I, I i fear you might be right pamela i, I i'm kind of leaning in the direction that i should not be watching this tomorrow 800-848-9222 maria is in new jersey hello maria Yes, hello. Uh, well, the greyhounds are, are treated horribly, and those are the dogs, and, and horses are treated horribly. If possible, it, they would be better off in a zoo, because in our great zoos, they have huge areas of plains for horses to be together, and that's what they want. They want to be together out, out in a field, uh, and then brought in, you know, they can be brought in uh, to sleep. So that's the way it should be. And the racetracks are closing for, for dogs. And my daughter has a, one of those greyhounds, and his uh, right back leg was broken. Ugh. So, And when she took him in, he didn't even know his name. He didn't ever see a TV. In other words, they're just put back in a box, and that's how they're treated. And the same thing with horses. Do you think the horses in, in the park in, in New York, in, in Central Park, do you think when they get off there, which is horrible for their legs and everything, uh, the streets, do you think when they put away, they're put into a field? Well, uh-huh. no, of course not, Maria. Thank you. And look, I have um, come to oppose the horse-drawn carriages in Central Park for precisely that reason. I am wondering what the deal is in terms of horse racing and how other people feel about it. Rick is in New Jersey. Original Rick, excuse me. Hello. Yes, good morning, Frank. Good morning. Uh, yeah, listen, you shouldn't watch it. Just, just as a, you know, you're you're a moral man, and and you know, listen. Did you hear that guy? His attitude. Well, some of them are just lazy. You have yeah, to yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, you know, a, a lot of humans it are like, lazy like, too. like that lady said. It sounded like slaves. Yeah. You know, you're whipping a living creature to do your bidding for your entertainment, and if they don't do it right, well, I'll just whip them more. You know, and it's like, oh my god. I couldn't believe what this guy was saying. Also, Frank, the ones that are treated well are the ones that are worth millions of dollars because they're winners. There's 99% of them are not winners, and they're not treated well. They're just sold to the glue factory. You're not a winner. What am I going to go? All right, you're dead. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate that. Larry in Brooklyn, hello. Yeah, listen, Frank, when I look at it, I'm an animal lover, okay? And this is probably, you know, you can't like – you go with a microscope and look at every little abuse that goes on. We try to stop as many abuses as possible, but you don't eliminate a whole sport that people get a lot of pleasure out because there are idealists out there. I mean, that's like the same thing as, you know, let's uh, like what Kathy Hochul did with the, uh, with the puppy stores. She elim- she made it illegal to sell puppies, but there are so many ways you could sell puppies humanely, but she didn't even give that a chance. It's the same thing with horse racing. You don't just uh, throw the whole thing out. And by the way, these animals 
like Bruce Springsteen says, are born to run. Now, it's true. They're missing fraternity. And that's an objection I have. They like to fraternize with other horses. So maybe improvements could be made where they can fraternize with other horses. One thing is not mutually exclusive with another. Let's seek to improve the industry and not wipe it, not be uh, abolitionists. Well, that's interesting, Tom, um, uh, Larry. And I'm wondering, have, have there been improvements already that deal with a lot of these, or is there still a long ways to go? Probably not, because pe- because people don't consider it abuse. But but the problem is the activists like to condemn a whole thing, so they're marginalized, yeah. you know, they, and yeah. then, and they're crazy people, most well, of them. I, I don't think. I don't. Th- I think some of them might be. I don't think most of them are uh, crazy people. I think most of them care about animals and don't want to see them uh, come to harm. Last call on this, and then we'll move on to some other things. Tom is on Long Island. Hello, Tom. How you doing, uh, Frank? Uh, I worked on a racetrack when I was a kid in the 1970s, and uh, I got out of the game around, uh, well, in the late 70s because of the human factor, which is uh, the most important person on the racetrack is the chemist. You know, they they got uh, these guys that are constantly coming around with the latest and the greatest illegal but coverable uh, drug that, you know, some of these drugs mask other drugs. Do you know what I'm saying? For the horses. Yeah, they give the drugs to the horses. No, I know that. I know that. Preston King won 100 races in, uh, I think it was 71 or 2, and he was running his horses on methadone. There was no test for yeah, the I, I hate hearing that, Tom. Tom, I got to run. Um, Evelyn, I, I know you wanted to say something. If you want to hold, we'll get to you. But uh, we are going to give you an opportunity to try and win $1,000. If you are the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222, we will give you an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Do that. Answer those 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, and you will be the proud recipient of $1,000. Go ahead and call 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, and uh, it is our opportunity to try and give away some money. If you are quick-witted enough and fast-thinking enough to know the answers to 10 random trivia questions as part of... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. 
Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Daniel in Queens is today's contestant. Hello, Daniel. Hello. Daniel, have you heard this segment before? Yes, I have. Great. So you know what to do, right? I do. I do. I'm ready to try to lose and not win and and go. No, no. You want to try and win and not lose. That's what I meant. Right. Oh, boy. We're off to a rough start so far. All right, Daniel. Um, The timer will begin after I ask you the first question. What What country is Baltimore, Maryland located in? The United States of America. What assassinated president was the father of John F. Kennedy Jr.? John F. Kennedy. What is the name of the yellow animated family on TV? The Simpsons. Who was the all-time leading scorer in the history of the NBA? LeBron James. What is the name of the largest organ in the human body? The brain. Ah, no. I'm sorry, Daniel. It is the skin. The skin is the largest organ, uh, larger than the brain. Um, Sorry, Daniel. Daniel, stay on hold. Give uh, Kenneth your information. And uh, that is, uh, he was doing well, though. He was doing well. He was taking a second, and he was, you know, doing his thing and the brain is not even second because some people might say well the skin's not in your body it's on your body well no it's the skin but if we're going to discount the skin it would be the liver that is the second largest organ the liver you the brain you got some you got a ways to go before the brain so he made it up to question number five uh did well did well so he'll hopefully get to enjoy a consolation prize all right Every day, I think we're going to get through a show without talking about Tucker Carlson. (laughs) By the way, if you want to get some of the great prizes that uh, people are winning on this show, whether it's the cap or mug that the person uh, that came up with the best question in the first hour got, or the terrific magnet that uh, Daniel's about to receive, you can go to our online store, store store.othersideofmidnightshow.com. We could use some new items in there. I'm not sure, you know, what the what we can what our options are. I've suggested a few recently and they're met with a tepid response, but store.othersideofmidnightshow.com is the web address and if you buy anything, use the promo code FRANK15. That's FRANK15. There's cool stuff on there. I have the Frank Morano unisex jersey. My mother has the Frank Morano Halloween movie poster, which is fe- which also features Kenneth Matt Blaze, as well as Prometheus, our resident alien. The other side of Midnight Pillow, which not only do we have in our house, but our neighbor has it across the street, keeping it outdoors, John Charles. Some cool stuff. So whatever you choose to order on there, just use the promo code FRANK15. All right. Megyn Kelly, who I think has been totally on the money when it comes to this Tucker Carlson situation, she had quite a bit to say on her uh, show, which is basically a podcast, but it's also carried on the uh, Sirius XM platform, but it's independently produced. So she had quite a bit to say about all this leaked footage 
and leaked documents that's coming out around around Tucker Carlson. And her take is pretty similar to mine. If you haven't been following this, there's very damaging text messages that have come out. Every day, another new leaked video comes out. Yesterday was a new video leaked of him making sort of what they claim are disparaging remarks about women, asking if the women uh, makeup artists get into get into uh, pillow fights. I think it's pretty innocuous, honestly. But um, I, I'll spare you the, the details. It's it's so silly. I don't think it's offensive. The key aspect of it that's getting highlighted yesterday is in the video, Carlson asks this staffer, when they go to the ladies' room and powder their noses, is there actual nose powdering going on? The woman says, sometime. Carlson says, oh, I like the sound of that. And then, you know, I guess it's sort of insinuating something else going on. And he asks about pillow fights. I think it's so silly. I mean, whatever. It's totally ridiculous. But anyway, Megyn Kelly commented on who is doing all this leaking of these documents and these stories and these videos. And this is what she said. It wasn't enough to fire their number one star. In my opinion, Fox News seems determined to absolutely ruin him, to ruin his reputation, to make him unemployable, and ideally, in their view, to make his audience turn on him so that they won't follow him wherever he goes next. Fox News is suffering what could fairly be called a bloodbath at not at eight o'clock. And now their entire prime time is suffering as a result of it. As viewers anger escalates uh, to exponential levels in the wake of this unfair treatment of their number one star. Okay. Right now, the latest ratings we have are from Monday because the ratings come out the next day. So we've gotten the Tuesday afternoon results. We'll get Tuesday nights today at four 30. So I have Mondays. On Monday night, the 7 p.m., hosted by Jesse Waters, in the Kia advertising demo of 25 to 54, which is the number they care about, beat the 8 p.m., the 9 p.m., the 10 p.m., and even Greg Gutfeld at 11. He beat them all. Why is that? Because people are still in love with Jesse? I like Jesse. This is not a hit on Jesse. But no, that's not what's happening. Jesse's getting kind of the number he was getting, a little lower. There's, he's suffering a bit, too. It's off a cliff, off a cliff at 8 p.m. They have left in droves, and then they don't recover. They are not coming back for Hannity. They're not coming back for Ingram. They're not coming back for Gutfeld. It is a devastating event from 8 p.m. forward now on Fox News. They lost in both the demo and the overall to MSNBC. Uh, The only reason they're not losing every night to CNN is because they have two viewers. So, I mean, it's like Brian Stelter still tunes in, and I think Don Lemon might be the other one hate watching. (laughs) That's the only reason. Um, So Fox News is truly in an existential crisis right now. I think her analysis of the situation is very apt and right on the money. I think uh, Fox News is responsible for all these damaging leaks towards uh, Tucker Carlson. And I think they are doing it for precisely the reasons that Megyn Kelly states, partly retribution, Partly an attempt to damage his reputation and make him uh, unemployable, although for the reasons I stated earlier, I don't think that's likely to be the case, and to make his audience turn on him. And I think you're going to see a steady drumbeat day after day of negative story after negative story about Tucker Carlson, Megyn Kelly about who is trying to destroy Tucker Carlson. And their solution to their massive error of firing their number one star 
is to try to ruin him. They're, why are they doing this? Uh, I was having a private conversation with a frequent guest of the show who, who's friends with Tucker, as am I, uh, today. And I said, it's, it's two reasons. Number one, omerta. You don't leave the cult. You don't leave voluntarily like I did with a hug goodbye on supposedly good terms. And you certainly don't leave when they've decide, decided to fire you on good terms. Hell no. Fire and destroy. That's how it goes. Why? Because if they fire the number one star, he could hurt them. He still has a very massive audience. So he has to be destroyed, you see. Otherwise, somebody could employ him. His audience is mad. We have to make the audience see. We fired Bill O'Reilly because he had paid $69 million in sexual harassment settlements. You have to understand that, audience. You have to forgive us. And the audience did. The audience isn't a bunch of unreasonable people. They said, oh, I miss Bill, but okay. I'll give him another chance. And Tucker took off in the eight o'clock because people were open-minded. They're not a bunch of at home. Like, I don't get my favorite. I don't watch. They were never given an explanation for Tucker. The, the rug was pulled under him, out from under him, out from under the audience with no explanation. And so now the destroy mission has to happen so that you, the audience members, realize you just were too stupid to understand how evil Tucker was. You see, that's what I believe is clearly happening here. Look, Megyn Kelly, I don't know Megyn Kelly. I think I've met her maybe twice in my life. I don't think we've ever had a conversation for more than 40 seconds. She wouldn't know me if she ran over me. I think she speaks from a place of experience where she knows a lot of the players involved here. She knows the dynamic that's at play in cable news in general and at Fox News specifically. I I don't pretend to have her level of experience or expertise on this one. I think she hit it out of the park there. I think she has nailed this situation involving Tucker Carlson to a T. Your reaction, 800-848-9222. A guy that's also involved in this is a guy that I had the opportunity to have dinner with yesterday, but I didn't want to. Not that I didn't want to have dinner with him, but I didn't want to just go to one more thing that is supposed to be fun. I am tied up with all the things that I feel obligated to go to. Geraldo Rivera, who I I do know a little bit and I like very much, both personally and as a personality, he's a Republican, but he's kind of a very liberal Republican. He is a Republican that could just as easily be a Democrat, and he is one of the the most popular shows on Fox News now is this show called The Five, and Geraldo uh, is usually one of the liberals on The Five, even though he's a registered Republican. And he's also usually one of the liberals on Hannity's program. They bring him on to debate uh, somebody more conservative. And he does a great job. Does a great job. And Rivera tweeted after uh, Tucker was fired. He said this. And a lot of people said this was sort of a parting shot at his former colleague. He said, I don't wish ill on anybody, but there is no doubt, as I said at the time, Tucker Carlson's perverse January 6th conspiracy theory was BS. Although he didn't say BS, he, you know, he said the full word. Having lost the election, President Trump incited an insurrection that sought to undermine our constitutional process. Now, I don't disagree with anything um, Geraldo said there, but Fox, if that's the reason they fired him, they should have come out and said, We fired Tucker because he put forward a narrative of January 6th that's not rational and that's misleading. They should have said that. 
And so Greg Gutfeld, who's one of the other co-hosts of The Five, and he's frequently on with Geraldo, he did not seem to take too kindly to Geraldo kicking dirt on Tucker Carlson on the way out the door. So Greg Gutfeld tweets, and this is for everybody to see. He says, you're a real class act, Geraldo, a real man of the people. So what happens yesterday? Well, Geraldo comes out yesterday and says that his upcoming appearances on The Five this week had been canceled, adding that he's sure there's a good reason. Now, when he was asked by media outlets to comment on what he's posted publicly, he said he couldn't comment. So you get the sense that all this drama at Fox News It is not slowing down by a long shot. So we'll see. The next person that's going to be in that slot, it was Brian Kilmeade last week. It's Lawrence Jones this week. The next person next week is uh, Kaylee McEnany. So we'll see how that goes in ratings-wise and in every other respect. All right, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. Uh, 800-848-9222. You can be heard for 15 seconds on this special Cinco de Mayo edition of The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Great, Andy B, uh, bringing us our theme song, The Other Side of Midnight. Hey, if it's your birthday today, you are celebrating with Jenna Fisher from The Office, the great Nellie Bly, who I believe was a journalist before she became the basis for a theme park character, Adele, one of my favorite actors, John Rhys Davies, who's got a beautiful voice. I'd love to get him on this program. George Clooney. No, George Clooney's tomorrow. And uh, Brooke Hogan, the daughter of Hulk Hogan, who became a reality show star in her own right. Also, you are celebrating with my friend Morgan Peckma, who was the director of the film, the Netflix original documentary, Get Me Roger Stone, produced by... I can't remember who produced it, but it's a great documentary It's called Get Me Roger Stone. It's not a love letter, Roger Stone. It's very well done. And it's very, I think, objective. And uh, the fact that you have me as one of the producers, and I voted for Trump, and I'm a friend of Stone, and then you have the three directors, Morgan, happy birthday, Morgan, among them, who did not vote for Trump and are liberal Democrats, I think it goes to show that the editorial process was not dominated by one political view or another. Because people that like Roger and that like Trump 
they like the picture, and people who can't stand Trump and can't stand Roger, they like the picture. So it's on Netflix. Uh, get me Roger Stone. Also, uh, I want to wish a happy birthday to my friend, nationally syndicated radio talk show host, Rich Valdez. Oh, you know, come to think of it, he invited me to this birthday party tomorrow, which I never got back to him about. So now I have to remember to get back to him and tell him I can't go. All right. Um, without further ado, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Evelyn in Bayonne. Frank, one of the reasons I listen to you is because you're a man with heart and you're not afraid to show it. I'm so glad that you're on the fence about the horse racing. Today, if you think it's wrong, it probably is. And then I saw one horse racing accident, and it is the most disturbing thing ever. And I'm with you and not going. Go to Atlantic City, Frank. E. Frank. Hello, Frank. Uh, I would like to be a member and participate in the President Joe Biden 2024 presidential campaign, since it's not going to be virtual. Uh, but, you know, it seems like RFK Jr. is catching up on Joe. Joe, get up. Wake up. Gary. Uh, according to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, talk about 15 seconds. We have 90 seconds till midnight when it comes to nuclear apocalypse. Fred. Hey, Fred. You can touch Derby winner. Number six, Kings Fred. Mid Tulips, Flory Dories. Dabba Dabba Doo. Raji. Indeed. The BBC merchandise should be given away gratis, as well as our advertising the station for free. Thank you. Jimmy. I'm a good American from Jamaica, Queens. I bet the ponies and 20 horse field today, and I like both nerdy. You're a waste of my time. Rusty. M- Marty. Frank, the average age of the horse racing fan is deceased. Roger. You know, with all the vacuum cleaner cleaning that Rachel does, if you have one of those brush attachments, there's probably a couple of cats that are used to the sound of vacuum cleaner. We used to vacuum clean the cat regularly to get rid of the hair. Leo. Frank, I ride Harley. Uh, I rock climb. I ski with my prosthetic, but I would never choose uh, losing a leg over the arm. You have two arms, just one as a spare one. You can learn. Uh, Lex, you need more. Thank you, Leo. That's Lance Lit on things for today. Good day. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.